listening to Nerds on Film with Roxy Noberry, Sean Moriarty, Gina Giovanetti, and Brian Moriarty. Hey nerds, it's Brian. Uh, so today we were supposed to be releasing an episode that was done uh, a few weeks ago. And it was an episode where we got to really introduce the audience to our new co-host, Gina. And uh, as it turns out, unfortunately, the episode um, was, I mean, the content was great, but the sound was just really, really bad. Uh, what had happened was our computer was kind of getting overworked and the tracks just kept falling out of sync. And you don't really need to know any of that, but to be totally transparent. So uh, what we decided to do is something a little different. I would like to kind of loop you in on some new news and comment on it, and then we will play the episode that really kind of introduced us to Gina. And it'll be, actually, it won't be the one that the first one she was on. It will be the second one that she was on regarding the Harry Potter movies, because I thought that one was just a fantastic uh, display of her knowledge and her geeking out with us. Um, So we'll do that, and then we will do some new feedback on the back end of the episode. So by the way, if you haven't, it's a great episode as it is, so give it a re-listen. You know, it deserves a chance to be heard a second time. And then we will do feedback, and then we will go forward from there. Um, Let's take a quick second, though, and let's talk about what's been going on in the movie world. So uh, Dunkirk just opened this weekend. Holy crap. And it got $28 million. It led the box office just beating out the Emoji movie, which is like... I'm honestly amazed that anyone even went and saw the the Emoji movie. So, uh, and because it has like a 6% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And granted, we've been very skeptical of Rotten Tomatoes in the past, but when it's that low of a rating, you pretty much know that there's nobody who's really rooting for it in the critical community. And that's kind of sad. So I'm just very surprised that it did. But we want to talk about two things. So first of all, Atomic Blonde came in fourth place. Kind of a bummer, because we know we're rooting for movies that have more female-led action movies, and I mean, Charlize Theron is amazing. We know that she really brought it home with uh, the Mad Max movie that was out just a couple years ago, and, uh, you know, it just it, it's kind of a bummer. But uh, nevertheless, you know, there is still some positives. Rather than curse the dark, let's light a candle, okay? So, first of all, Spider-Man Homecoming, still in the top five after three weeks at the box office. Kind of awesome. Um, and it took in $13 million. And also, by the way, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is still in the top ten after being out for almost two months. Really, really fantastic. And it's at like 400 or almost $400 million. It's at 395 and change uh, right now for the domestic box office. So that's pretty fantastic. Very, very excited about that. And by the way, Wonder Woman is not just still in the top 10. It's in the top five highest grossing movies of 2017. So that's pretty amazing, though. Of course, we know we've got a couple of other big movies coming out this year. We obviously, have, we have Justice League. We also have episode eight and everything. So we'll see if those numbers stick around. But nevertheless, very, very good. And of course, we can't not talk about the fact that Warner Brothers is vying to get Wonder Woman an Oscar. That is just so, so awesome. Um, I, you know, I don't want to say that we predicted it before, but like at the same time, it definitely deserves it. If nothing else for an achievement. No, but they're also putting money behind Dunkirk to get it nominated for Best Picture. So it's possible that Warner Brothers may have more than one horse in the game at the Oscars this year. It's also possible that 
Wonder Woman will get overlooked because it's a comic book movie, which we really, really hope uh, won't happen because, honestly, comic book movies have been a more serious member of the cinematic community now for 20 years now, and it's time that they get a little more serious recognition. That's, of course, me being punt. Uh, that's just my personal opinion, but there we have it. So, guys, without further ado, let's take a step back and let's enjoy parts one and two of Nerdicus. All right, we'll talk to you later. So I'm curious. Uh, we have to talk about, like, what what have we seen lately? Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, I can bring up one in particular that I have seen. Uh, I went and saw Kevin Smith's Tusk. Oh, I did too. I'm curious what you thought about oh, it. Oh, my goodness. Okay. No spoilers. I was it fantastic? It, it was a clusterfuck. Uh, like a good clusterfuck or a bad clusterfuck? Okay, like an evil dead clusterfuck. As in Kevin Smith does a comedy horror movie clusterfuck. Yeah. And it was a shocker. For sure. And as a Canadian, like, Degrassi and Kevin Smith fan, I was totally delighted because there's all this Kevin Smith humor that everyone can really really appreciate. Sure. You know, it's pretty much like, my. I think my initial reaction was like, Clerks meets Saw. <laughs> wow. Um, Very it, much so, yeah. Kind of a strange, you know, conglomeration of, of sorts. Uh, but you've basically got... Who's who's in this? You've got... Um, Justin Haley, Long. You've got Justin Long. You've got Haley Joel Osment, who got a little chubby. Yeah. Um, Genesis Rodriguez. Genesis was, Rodriguez was amazing. She was great. And, I, of course, Michael Parks. Dude, Michael Parks. okay. So, basically, Kevin Smith says, I wanted to put Ke- Michael Parks in a really fucked up movie. Like, yeah. That was his whole intention for Tusk. Right. <laughs> my, I gotta say, though, my favorite performance in the film was uh, Guy Lepoint. Oh, Guy, yeah. Which I will not spoil who the actor is, because no. he's only credited as Guy Lepoint, but he is fan-freaking-tastic. It's I his know. best acting in the last decade in that movie. <laughs> Yes, I agree. I will totally support that and say that's probably one of the saving graces to the film. I agreed. If anything, that agreed. part of the film. For me, the film takes a very, very... It's almost like a weird comedy suspense thriller. And mm. then the moment you see him as the walrus, and that's not a spoiler, Kevin Smith has outright said yeah. said that what the movie's about. <laughs> yes. When you see him as the walrus, it is a whole other level of yeah. wow. I went and saw it with my friends and my female friend, it's actually a mutual friend of ours, Kat Sylvan. Oh, we saw Kat? Okay. She wept. <laughs> she wept? She openly wept, like tears. Like, like I, her boyfriend had to console her. And I mean, I, I don't think she's going to be embarrassed by me talking about how like... From being frightened or... I don't know. That's the thing. That or we... just the release of seeing it. I want to say it was a combination of both. It was okay. a combination of fear, confusion, confusion, terror, and all around just like, uh, what? (laughs) That was kind of the looks on our faces. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but I think what we can take from it is that thanks to this movie, even though it was not a huge success, Mm -hmm. it's now going to pave the way for Clerks 3. Which is awesome. And, and the I'm, rest of his Canadian trilogy. There which, you go, Jim I'm, North. I'm really looking forward to Yoga yeah. Hosers. That sounds like a really um, fun movie. I'm yes. really looking forward to Moose Jaws. Dude, Moose Jaws. Jaws with Moose. With like, moose. That's, that's all it's that, <laughs> like, gonna be. What the fuck? Like, because okay. It's gonna be Jaws isn't moose. moose Jaws the name of a, isn't that the name of a town that's in Canada? I want to say most likely, yes. yes. <laughs> wow. I just love the idea weird. of, like, seeing the antlers. That's, you know, that that's all that's cut off. You see the antlers on screen coming at you, you're like, what instead of the fin? 
<laughs> so Some fucked up stuff, man. Anyway. But it's going to be, you know, a lot of the same actors who were in Tusk and then some. Yeah. And I think yeah. Kevin Smith is coming into a second phase of his career now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm really excited to see what he's going to come he, up with. He went into that second phase with Red State. Yeah. True that. This, True is where, that. this is where he is. Which was terrifying. Yeah. By Red the way. State was terrifying. Wait, he actually thought Red State was going to be his. Like, he. Yeah, he said he was out. Like he right. even yeah. said acrimoniously, he left the industry and yeah. somehow. Yeah. He re- I, yeah. Here's the thing: I think Kevin Smith has just been really moody. Oh yeah, and and so I what's really I find very frustrating to me is that I don't want to criticize anybody for their life choices, for their artistic choices, or whatever. But I find it much harder to relate to this Kevin Smith. Than I did the old Kevin Smith because he smokes and too much weed. I, that's exactly it, <laughs> yeah. and it's not. And it's not that he's a stoner. Okay, <laughs> it's that the decisions he makes now, his artistic decisions that he makes, I find much harder to relate to. Yeah, and I would hate to think that he has become disconnected. Mm. But to me, it feels like he's disconnected. Let's be honest. Tusk was born out of an hour long conversation that he had with Scott Mosier, which yeah. that episode. I listened to that episode like a couple days after it came out. I was crying <laughs> my eyes because it was so fucking funny. Yeah. And I was like, I hashtagged Walrus Yes yeah. and was like, fucking do it. And I, except I said, I said that Gary Oldman needed to play Michael <gasps> Park's character. Yeah. Um, that would have been nice. But I was like, oh my God, yes. Like, this is totally ridiculous. Absolutely. And so I'm glad that he made it. Mm-hmm. Like, but in that same way that I'm glad that, like, Army of Darkness exists. Like, yeah. that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And it's kind of groundbreaking, too, because this is the first feature film that we've ever heard of that was inspired by a podcast. Yeah. Isn't that great? Yeah, and that's, like, Facts. that's And the fact crazy. is, they do such good social commentary on the, the, the reality that podcasting is and yeah. how popular it is now and how just kind of ridiculous it can be you yeah. know because the whole sure. you know concept is wallace brighton the main character who played by right. justin yeah. long is this pretty obnoxious character who happens to host a podcast yeah and his little sidekick you know is is played by Haley joel osman the two of them together they have a podcast called the nazi party Oh my spell god. Spell it, spell it. Spell it, yeah. It's N O T S E E party. Yeah, because and, yeah. yeah. They basically go around like critiquing online viral videos mm. and it, it kind of goes from there. Okay. Yeah. The whole like purpose of their gotcha. whole journey that Wallace goes on has a lot to do with the whole point of the podcast. And sure. I, I just thought that that was really creatively done. And as a podcaster, I was a little bit like, I don't know, Brian, how did you feel about how they comment the commentary they made on the state of podcasting. Uh, I'm not sure I would have listened to the Nazi party if that if <laughs> I if it were an actual podcast. Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of cool because it validates the art form. Sure. Now, um, and it it recognizes that this is becoming a thing. It's not really going away anywhere anytime soon, I should say. But uh, Wallace is kind of an ass, and I yeah. caught that from the first episode they were recording. Yeah. Um, so that made me feel very unsympathetic for it. And I also feel like, well, great, we're not all douchebags who think what we have to say is important. Yeah. Even though you do have to have a little bit of that to have the courage to do a podcast. Yeah. Um, I felt they came off as full of themselves and I didn't and I I just hope that doesn't cast the a poor light on what other podcasters do. It's it's interesting because it's like self-deprecating but at the same time kind of self-validating because Kevin Smith is the one who did it. Mm-hmm. So kind of highlighting podcasting and saying this is an art form like this is a real thing yeah. um and doesn't he play the podcast episode over the credits yes toward the end yeah. of it yeah yes, yeah. He plays yeah part of it over and the, over the end. and so it's kind of like 
yeah, we get the idea, but it makes it that much more of a gimmick mm-hmm. and actually to be taken less seriously, in my opinion. And granted, I have not seen the movie yet. It's too yeah. self-aware. It's too self-aware. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's, so that's me. But mm-hmm. Well, can I share what I saw? Yeah, please. So Dave and I uh, ended up going to see Gone with the Wind. Aww. One of the, one of the Fathom events, which is awesome because uh, the Sean's going to crucify me for this, but I had not seen it. Until that night when really? I see it. Really? Get out. Dead serious, yeah. Really? Because it's a four-hour movie. You have to, like, go in there preparing yourself to go, okay. Yes. Oh, yeah, no, you're committed. Like, that's, like, you got to pack an overnight it, bag so. and, like, wear your pajamas. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, you gotta, yeah. I mean, we could do a whole episode on God of the Wind, and I'm sure we will. Dave mm. wants to we now, and I'm sure we will. We month on God of the Wind. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But what I will, one. What I will say <laughs> Opening is, credits. in my, like, 30-second review of it, amazingly shot. Beautiful cinematography. Oh, my God. Uh, production value holds up 70 years, 75 years later. Um, and I think there's a reason why George Clooney exists because he is taking a hat from Clark Gable. Oh, Clark Gable yeah. was fantastic in that movie. Yeah. And I understand why it's easy to compare the two. Frankly, yeah. my dear, I don't give a damn. Yeah, Clark Gable was awesome. And I'm sorry, Scarlett is a bitch but that's that's all I'm gonna well say. yeah no her, her character is ridiculous but like oddly compelling I think yeah. we, we already want to call when we ever read it we want to call it Scarlett O'Hara is, is a cheap whore oh my hey. god <laughs> wow sad but true it's, she's, that's the she's thing she's manic she's manic she's that's Vivian Lee in a nutshell it's no? a it's a ter- tumultuous time and yeah yeah and, and that <laughs> is, she's yeah. caught by the confines of society god life is so hard for women in the 50s <laughs> 1850s yes sure sure <laughs> when, when, was, wait, when was it filmed? It was filmed in 1939. Oh, yeah, 30s, but the okay. but the movie is set in like Civil the War era. Yeah. Well, it goes antebellum yeah. all the way through. Yeah, Reconstruction. Yeah, Damn. golden um, age of cinema. But, yeah, yeah. Um, I saw. Uh, oh God, what did I see? Oh, this is where I leave you. <gasps> yeah, how was it? Yeah. It was. Um, it was okay. It was pretty good. Uh, definitely worth a watch. I wouldn't buy it. I wouldn't like own it. Um, mm-hmm. but. Probably great for Netflix. Mm. Um, really good character development. Fantastic acting by mm. everybody, of course. But what do you expect from, like, Tina Fey, Jason Bateman, Adam Driver was awesome. Oh, Corey Stoll. His career is taking I off. I know, I know. Corey Stoll was really good, but Dude. very underused in the movie. I wish there was more mm. to his story than there actually was. Corey Stoll has, a, he has had a huge year. Yeah, yeah, yeah he really sure. has. Uh, Jane Fonda playing the mom. How with, was she? With the tiggle bitties. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. I mean, it's the it's the gag of the movie, um, yes. but she was really good, and there was a, a nice um, twist to her story that kind of caught me off guard, but I really liked it. Um, mm. uh, Timothy Oliphant was in it, and he had a small part, but that was really crucial and very, like, really good. Mm. Um, Rose Byrne did a good job with the character that was written for her. <laughs> she, she always plays, like, the bitch, right? She was but she wasn't the bitch. No. No, no, what? no. No, she, um, and she, I mean, she was, she's been in other movies. She's really, she's really fantastic. Yeah. I like her a lot as an actress. Um, but her role was very much um, written to be a female to go along with Jason Bateman's character. Mm. And so, I mean, there wasn't really a whole lot to her. Damn. But then again, there wasn't really a whole lot to some of the other peripheral characters. Yeah. So, I mean, she she was a little cheapened, but yeah. Um, yeah. but 
there's a lot of story happening in this movie. That being um, said, like Jason Bateman, was he kind of the focal point? Of he the was film? the focal point. Um, okay. Tina Fey was more secondary. Um, Adam Driver's kind of more third. Corey Stoll kind of got the the bottom rung as far as the sibling core siblings are concerned. Okay. okay. Um, but it was still it was still a very funny movie. Like it had a lot of really great laugh out loud moments yeah. and really a lot of really good sincere moments. Nice. Um, I just don't think it's going to be one of those like end all be all change your life kind of movies it's not gonna and also would you compare it to like a dramatic arrested development movie it really is yeah yeah i actually oh, okay. i'm glad you said that because uh yeah steve and i went to go see that movie and he was just like is this arrested development the movie right <laughs> i was like I mean, kinda. Bateman, it's another jason bateman in a dysfunctional family film. yes yes but <laughs> but i feel like I mean, the humor is not not the same. Okay, but it's still really funny, and Tina Fey is just awesome. She looks fabulous, no? She, yeah, yeah, and oh. her and her acting is spectacular, and, it, and she's just she just does a really good job of kind of playing a crucial core character for a lot of these characters. Like she kind of is a glue. Nice. Mm-hmm. So I love it when you have one actor who can really kind of keep everything together Mm -hmm. you know for a lot of when you have a huge cast and you have a huge you know array of characters i mean take take daniel radcliffe and harry potter i want to say his job his main role throughout all eight of the films was to really be the main i go i want to say through line Mm -hmm. you know it was always about harry well, he is playing Harry Potter. Exactly. That is that is the title yeah. of the series. And I want to say, in that regard, Daniel Radcliffe as an actor, I felt, was fairly successful at keeping it together. I mean, he grew up making the movies. Yeah. And to have to go from being a little kid to a young adult and growing up in front of, you know, audience members and having the responsibility of keeping such a huge character on his shoulders for so many formative years in his life. Sure. I mean, I can only imagine the kind of pressure it must must be on a person and still finding time to do a stage play where you show your dong oh my god right <laughs> talk yeah. about sexual awakening <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. he, he matured with the movies but very much so yeah. exactly. and a horse yeah <laughs> <laughs> and a horse, indeed. which is that's a fucked up play too i, I haven't yeah. seen it but... i haven't seen it but i i read the play itself and there's mm-hmm. there's just fascinating um uh, I'm trying to find the right word. Like the, I guess the, what what goes through him mentally mm-hmm. and just the, how the upbringing affects him psychologically yeah. is incredibly interesting. Because the whole thing is, you know, he grew up under a very religious mother, mm-hmm. and then when this. I believe it's a photo or a picture of Jesus was taken out of his room and replaced with a horse. He basically continued the same sort of religious ritual just with this picture of the horse instead. So the horse became his God. Yeah. And which is, you know, kind of what springboards the whole rest of the plot of the the right. play. And that's yeah. what Equus is supposed to refer to. Yeah. 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 I, I saw it performed in San Jose a couple of years back with a buddy of mine who played the main character. And the transformation that the character undergoes, it, it's absolutely transformative. And uh, transformation, transformative transformation. Um, basically, the process was incredibly traumatic. Yeah. And <clears throat> the actor who portrayed the character... I want to say he probably felt traumatized at some points having mm-hmm. to go you know go that deep. So I can only imagine what Daniel Radcliffe had to experience being on such a large scale yeah. and again on such a huge under such a huge spotlight as Harry Potter gets naked, you know. Right. That was pretty much the tagline. So yeah. so did you see your friend's dick in the play? Uh 
It was a cold evening. <laughs> it, was, it was a chilly theater. Is this a friend that we know as well from the, from our theater days? Or? Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, he's a San Jose State alum. Got it. Yeah. Understood. So. <laughs> well, on that note, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> welcome to Nerds on Film. I'm Brian Moriarty. I'm Sarah Ashley. I'm Roxy Noberry. And joining us, well, actually, Roxy, let's yeah, let you intro. In the studio tonight for round, shall we say, two or three, is my lovely friend Gina Giovanetti. Hi, I'm Yay. back. You may remember her from our previous episodes and we covered Lord of the Rings. And um, Gina, you were such a wonderful addition Oh, thank you. Cave. Thank you so I much. Tried. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. While I was not there yeah. to partake, yeah. I did very much enjoy your expertise on. Oh, thank the films. you. That's very kind. Awesome. Yeah. So, fun story about our subject tonight. Uh, as you guys remember, uh, Brian was very busy. Yes, I was. was. A busy little he was bit. Very, very busy mm-hmm. with theater. Mm-hmm. And um, while we were going to use Gina's expertise in Harry Potter last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brian was unavailable, and he's such a huge Harry Potter fan. We couldn't do the episode with without him. That would yeah. just been so absolutely cruel of us. And we're not that mean. Rooted. Uh, Gina was cool enough to switch gears and just talk about something else that she knows a shit ton about. Clearly, <laughs> um, so we had to come back, give it a second go uh, with Harry Potter. And unfortunately, Sean is not here tonight. He is not. He himself is not a Harry Potter fan. Mm. Um, I myself am not a Harry Potter fan per se, but Ooh. so I'll be kind of representing that but sean is off doing beer things so you, you are the opposition coalition yeah I mean, i'm not opposed to harry potter it's just something that never resonated with no me. that's okay like so. it resonated with me as a kid because the time i paid like i didn't have a lot of friends in elementary school i was picked on a lot mm. and so books kind of became my escape and then I was able to gain the shittiest superpower ever, which is the ability to retain finite little details. Which I love, um, by the way. But <laughs> it's my favorite I, uh, thing about her. So, like, I was the kid that would sit in the corner of the playground and read Harry Potter. And mm-hmm. so there were reasons that it resonated with me. But I understand it's not necessarily going to resonate with everyone either. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people go through different things as they grow up in life. And different things resonate with you for different mm-hmm. reasons. And sure. I just happened to be in a place where it that did so with me Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah yeah no that's an interesting point you bring up because you started reading harry potter in your childhood right i mean we were kids when this series really came into fruition the first book was published in 1997 um author jk rowling british and it started british British. (laughs) the year is 1997 the author british i like like how like that's her qualifier it's not that she's a britain no jk rowling British. British. <laughs> <laughs> like that's her subtitle if you're if you're yes. what, is, what is the background in that regard of what I always hear this one lovely story of the moment that she wrote Harry Potter. She was sitting in a cafe somewhere. She was on a train. She was on a train. Oh, okay. um, yeah. The idea came, she was thinking about it, but there was a train that she was on that was mm. stalled. And that was when she really started to formulate all of her ideas. And at that point, she also had nothing to write with. So she had to keep all of these ideas in her head. And then once she got home and was able to access paper and pen, she was able to start to write. The whole story with the cafe is when she was a single parent living on her own, mm-hmm. she would go and she would take her baby daughter for walks. And then once her daughter would fall asleep, she would go to the cafe and she would sit in the cafe and write. By that time, she had already had 
three chapters of what would eventually become Harry Potter and the Philosophers or Sorcerer's Stone mm-hmm. um, written, and then it was her expanding upon it. Also, the story that she would write on the cafe napkins mm-hmm. is a complete myth. She was on welfare, but she was not to a point of poverty that she had to resort to writing on napkins. No. She did write in a notebook and online <laughs> paper. People like to kind of romanticize her poverty right. um, and show in her kind of rags to riches story, which in yeah. essence it still is. Yeah. They just like to romanticize sure. how far into poverty she well, was. that's the comparison. Know that her struggle was, was Harry struggle and a lot of what Somewhat. Harry persevered through what I would want to imagine was cathartic. I would her. say more or less that her her situation was more communicated through the Weasleys, right? Yeah. The, the large family that was always because Harry really was her ideal, right? He yeah. had had he was a kid who discovered his magical heritage who also found out his parents were freaking rich in the in the, in wizarding the wizarding world at least. Right. right. So you know her yeah. her uh, relation to Harry is more his uh, connection to the idea of loss. Her right. mother died when she was a teenager of multiple sclerosis, which is why a lot of charitable foundations that J.K. Rowling donates to are multiple sclerosis foundations. Mm. Um, her mother died when, like I said, her mother died when she was a teenager, and or no. Her mother died, not when she was a teenager. Her mother was sick while she was a teenager, but mm-hmm. her mother had died when she had just started writing Harry Potter, mm. and she felt awful that she had never told her mother about this amazing thing that she was going to start to publish and start to write and how excited it was. And, you know, she... she is just so upset that her mother never got to live to see what her daughter had become and mm-hmm. this amazing empire that she was able to build. And so these three chapters of Harry Potter that she had initially um, before she she moved back home and everything, that was something that her mother never knew about. Mm. And uh, Harry's loss of his parents especially was something that she went back and further elaborated upon because she was able to feel that loss uh, especially of a parent even more so wow, right wow. what fascinates me too is that of all the writing of any of the novels she did she spent the most time on the first chapter of the first book God. yeah she rewrote it I think was like seven times or something like well that. I, everything is seven so I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt <laughs> yeah. that it was seven it may times. actually have been 17 or something like she went through an, an, an absurd number of rewrites of it because there were some points where she felt like she wanted to set up what she knew was gonna be this massively long epic mm-hmm. and she felt like there was some drafts where it gave away almost everything mm, too right. soon Interesting. Uh, I mean you know you do see some interesting things there you hear about Sirius Black in the yeah. first chapter of the first book and it's not even a thought in your head until you get to Prisoner of Azkaban oh, for great. example that's something um, that I love about that there's these little things buried so absolutely. far back in the text that suddenly you're just like oh my god it was that thing right. and, <laughs> and it's so good absolutely and the flying motorcycle like that what a a hell of a callback to have that doesn't come full circle again until really the seventh book. Well, because right? it's it's fantastic because she uses Hagrid as sort of this gatekeeper character where right. Hagrid was the first one on this motorcycle to bring him into this particular world and then in on that flying motorcycle in the seventh installment, he's being taken back out of that muggle world. And then right. the same thing is when... Um, you know, you think Harry's dead in the seventh movie. You see Hagrid cradling his body as well. That's another recall back where Hagrid was the first to really take him into this wizarding world to Diagon Alley, to the Leaky Cauldron, that Hagrid was then the one, you know, pulling him back 
out of it as right. well. And the one of the things they don't talk about in the movie is that Hagrid, I believe, was the one who actually had to collect Harry from the Potter's house after what had happened with uh, with Voldemort. I think so. Yeah. I think it was. I think it may have been, it may have been several Dumbledore. of them. I think it was Dumbledore that collected him. Okay. And then you know he was then kind of passed off to Hagrid because I think at one point there is. A no, never mind. I was gonna, I was gonna say something about. I thought there was going to be some sort of discussion with um, Sirius Black and and Dumbledore, but it's at that point where they still think Sirius Black was the one who betrayed them. So that's that's a complete a mind point. mind fart. So right, right. Either yeah. way, either way, you still get the relationship between Hagrid and Harry as something that's yeah. you know paternal, and it's 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 a loving relationship from beginning to end. For and sure. I want to say that what I really love about the films how they honor the books in the sense that the castings were very true to form. Although, I, I saw this really interesting cartoon where they compared the um, the actors to the... So the actors to the characters. Yeah. And it's like book Harry versus movie Harry, right? Mm-hmm. So like book Harry... The, the, the funny the cartoon vision of him is like scared there's a scar there's wild messy hair and he's you know skinny scrawny awkward angsty whatever movie Harry you know scary and shiny straight hair kind of a nuggety in physique I would I would say the only real discrepancy <laughs> between book and movie Harry was his hair because there's yeah. this whole thing about how messy Harry's hair always is mm. and it's not particularly messy at least in movies one and two i know movies three and four they it was pretty messy i mean four was the four was the movie okay. where nobody got haircuts four like, was the awkward puberty episode. it's true <laughs> and it's funny too because i remember reading in the fourth book and they, they kept alluding to it through all the first three books too of how um how unkept hermione's hair is supposed to be too oh my god mm-hmm. and then the thing that like the first time you imply that ron and may have a thing yeah. for Hermione is when they go to the Yule Ball. And she has it all straightened. She has it all straightened and coiffed and everything. Uh, Oh, snap. Okay, well, I guess my original point is being that, I don't know, I felt like they kept pretty true overall in in character uh, motivations, in in the spirit of the character. I agree. It's a spirit. I I feel like that they're, even though they, I think they made more changes than omissions uh, as they got later on in the series, Mm -hmm. but the changes they made were minor enough for his, like, you it's okay. Yeah, exactly. You're not changing yeah. the entire outcome of the story, yeah. which is what Warner Brothers originally wanted to do, by the way, right. when I they think, got the rights from Rowling. Really? I think one of the things that really helped keep the heart of the film was their insistence on an all-British cast. Uh-huh. All-British um, cast, at yeah. least, I mean, at least all UK cast, you look at it, some of the actors and actresses are Scottish or Irish, but it's at least of that general area. Yeah. And, I mean, there. I remember there being... You know, jokes when Chris Columbus picked up Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone, depending on where you're from, Mm -hmm. that, you know, oh, it's like, you know, Macaulay Culkin as Harry Potter. And it's just like, no, 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 no. You need to take a step back. And I think that that insistence on the all British cast really helped retain the heart of the series about how it's this very British thing. And especially the idea of boarding school as well. Mm. Like, that's not something that we see as much, I guess, in America. Yeah. Boarding school is a very European thing. Yeah, surely, very surely. much so, yeah. And yeah. there's a little bit on the on the Northeast, I would say. Yeah, 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 there is. I think I've... I remember reading a lot of books when I was kind of in that, like, elementary school, junior high era, that middle that middle range literature um, yeah. 
I, I read a lot of stuff about kids going off to boarding school, you know, mm-hmm. their parents totally. shipping them off and all, you know, all that stuff, right? Yeah. right. Um, and I think one thing was interesting because I tried to read the first Harry Potter book. And one thing that I think lost me is that it just felt to me at the time like very typical children's Brit lit. Like mm. it didn't – there was nothing that seemed super special about it to mm-hmm. me like as far as the writing was concerned. Yeah. And therefore, I didn't even really give the story a chance. And and this is not the first time where the idea of a magical boarding school had been done either. I mean, there was a member of a British series called The Worst Witch, mm. which was effectively a very – I wouldn't say it's a copycat at all because, to be honest, I haven't even fully seen the show – but it has a very similar idea that it's a magical boarding school where, but mostly it's girls though who are going to learn learn oh magic. Oh my god! I remember watching that show in Canada you know when I was I'm a kid. About? Yes. Yeah. Oh my god! There were broomsticks and castles Aww. and little British girls. It was the cutest thing. It was a drama though. Yeah. 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 It was, so it was the female Harry Potter pretty much. Oh, essentially. She, yeah. yeah. So you bring that up, and all I I. I didn't have the exposure to like the cute little girls boarding school. It's just, like I think of girls school witches. I immediately think of the craft. Oh, okay. oh. Yeah. <laughs> the craft was the shit. Robin though Judy. I love that Fire movie. It was a bulk. I really, <laughs> I really <laughs> I love, love the craft. There's a picture when I had my haircut that short is. where it's like it kind of looks like Nancy's hair in the craft, yes. and I'm just like, yes, I can destroy everyone. <laughs> So worshiping Melo. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, it's Mana. Thank oh, you. Mana. Merlot was a nice fine wine, Brian. No, not Merlot. I thought it was Melo. I thought that no, was no, Mana. Mana. Oh. oh, sorry. Sorry, guys. <laughs> anyway. This is a Harry Potter episode, not a Robin Tooney film. It's a 1990s episode. I want to bring this up, though. Can we all agree that J.K. Rowling's inspiration for Snape was pretty much Alan Rickman from the start? Well, I mean, it, that wasn't necessarily her inspiration, but Alan Rickman just hits. Alan Rickman, he is just hits perfect. the character of Snape so. Alan no. Rickman Why is you perfect. It's amazing. Anybody else being Snape? Honestly, at this point, no, no. Though the one thing that's really interesting is that maybe this is just Grand Prix's, um illustrations of him, mm-hmm. but every illustrated version I've seen of Snape, he always has a goatee. Huh. Yeah, he does have the goatee. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. So he has almost a kind of a Jafar kind of look. Yeah, in the, uh, I, I do in the remember books. that. But yet, mm. Rickman takes a whole other look to take with it, and yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. Well, that's I think yeah, yeah. I think the you know the omission of the goatee is an inter- there's little like things that are not necessarily canonically mentioned in the books that sure. were then added to the characters to make them look a certain way. One of the examples is Jason Isaacs as Lucius Malfoy. Things like, you know, his sweet ass pimp cane with the wand in it, (laughs) the long blonde wig. Those were very much Isaac's own ideas on what the character should look like. This very kind of well-kept, almost foppy looking (laughs) wizard with the long hair, like very well-kept, very opulent is the word I'm looking for. And one of the things, I guess, in Wardrobe, he asked if he could have a cane and Wardrobe got really confused concerned and they asked him you know do you do you need a cane is that something that you need to be able to walk and he's yeah. like no no i just i just really yeah. want a badass cane. And, I just I, want a cane and what's awesome is the fact that they make the cane also the holder for the, the wand. wand it's like a sword cane well so that's Dude. actually something that you know that that calls back to british aristocracy victorian yeah. era right where it was Definitely. not uncommon for men to have walking sticks that doubled as swords or guns right and it's it's matter. it's shady too because yeah. he can just whip that out whenever but right. whereas you know Wands are not necessarily a concealed weapon, and he's kind of cowardly hiding it until he feels the need.
mean to, you know, curse someone with it, which really drives home the kind of character that Lucius yeah. Malfoy is. Mm. Right, agreed. Well, so let's talk a little bit about then how the books, because you're talking about, we talk about how the first three got published in the late 90s to the early 2000s, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1997, 1998, um, 1990. Yeah, yeah, Sorcerer's Stone actually, I don't think was released in America until 1998. Um, mm. right. That was when Scholastic pick up, picked up the rights for it. And they and changed then, the title because they didn't think kids would get the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah, one of the things that I saw as a kid reading the books too was this retention of the overall Britishness of the the slang as well, or the, the language. Um, words like sneakers that then became trainers in the first couple publications of the book. Uh, the kids call Mrs. Weasley mom, whereas she becomes mum in the other ones. Right. Um, they, as people began to understand the overall kind of British terminology, more and more of it was phased back into the American publications as well. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so what ends up happening is the success of the books gets Warner Brothers interested. And mm-hmm. so they, they choose to take the option, I think, around the time Goblet of Fire comes out, which was, I think, 2000, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe maybe, maybe even mm-hmm. late 99, looks, actually. That sounds generally accurate. Goblet of Fire was in 2000. Yeah. 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 So they, they get the, they basically get the rights to the first four, and they have the option for the other three. Really? Because the other three hadn't been written yet, and Warner Bros. is like, well, we don't know if this is going to be a success, so let's just kind of keep our options open. We don't know. Exactly. But here's what? what's even more, here's what's more screwed up, and this is typical... What's going to make the most money? Yeah. This is typical studio heads having conversations that, and not writers having conversations. Exactly. They wanted to make Harry Potter American. Mm. They wanted to forget. They wanted to get the rights from the books, mm. but not actually adapt each book. They wanted to take elements from the books and, and make new stories. Craft a story oh, that was uh, an amalgam of like like the first few books in Which like one movie. Been- Awful, because then you would have ended up with something like a series of unfortunate events, which was god awful. Right, which is disappointing. Super. This is super important because when Christopher Columbus was signed on, he flat out said, "Okay, first of all, if we're going to do this, we need two things. One, we need to make sure we keep the books intact. Mm -hmm. Two, they're all British. And then finally, J.K. Rowling. I think even Jake. This is one of the conditions too. Is that she said." She's got to be a creative consultant. She has to have the final say. She was. Oh, yeah. There were there were certain things that she really did not want to happen. Like she didn't want the story to completely sell out at that point either. Like she didn't want things like McDonald's toys of the characters and <laughs> right. stuff. And so that was that was a big thing in getting the the rights from her and you know having her agree to having it being made a certain way as well. Agreed. And so and and that stuck true for all of the seven slash eight movies that she was the final say on things that like were being developed on set that she could counteract and they had to change it she had a conversation with the director the director told so and so and it changed so she couldn't so they couldn't do merchandising through mcdonald's but they could through hot topic (laughs) yeah i guess i think i think that's a lot of something that has changed over the years as you know (laughs) there's more and more things that they can completely just slap the harry potter name on you got your house scarves and you got your wands you got their wands the red fair i mean come on now. well no that's just pretty much anybody with the oh god was it the lathe where they're just like yeah. i'm just gonna make chess pieces in harry potter one I, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember there was a website in the early 2000s and it was it had the same kind of names that you would see in diagon alley it wasn't yeah. like the leaky cauldron or the prancing pony but it had a similar kind of sound to it huh. and it was a place where you could go and get custom-made authentic quote-unquote 
Harry Potter ones that were all the same woods and designs that they claimed the books would have. Wow. And you could also get your um, your robes there, too, if you wanted to have oh your school robes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure that website still exists. I forget what it's called, but yeah, they, but it's not, they have the character ones, but then there's also ones that you can customize and there's right. other fancy ones. And... I just remember being at the Renaissance Fair and theirs is a, a booth there where, you yeah. know, this guy made wands, right? He even went as far as to include little, like, accoutrements that you could put into the wand. Those are and, great. like, one of them is, like, a dragon feather and, and like, a two. Phoenix feather. Dragon, dragon hearts. Dragon heart strings. Whatever. Either way, he, like, went it's out so of his cute. way to include, like, you could put little, like, charms yeah. inside I'm sorry. I, I will not allow incorrect wand lore. It is dragon heart strings, <laughs> unicorn hair, phoenix feather. Thank you. All and right. what was the... There was something that was different about the uh, elder wand. It was Fleur, the... Uh, no, uh, it's the, the phoenix feather. Fleur's, yeah, yeah. And, and the, then Fleur's had the Vila hair in it because it was one of her grandma's. Aww, right. cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so the guy even made a little, like, <laughs> dragon thing. It yeah. It was like, oh, shit. Oh, oh, phoenix feather. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is a phoenix feather? He's like, yes. Believe <laughs> Just it. play along. Play along, <laughs> damn it. Well, and, this, okay. and I go to a lot of festivals. There's okay. always somebody selling those wands. Right? And they're always freaking mobbed with children. Yes. Right, of course. <laughs> yeah. You get your bright pink leopard print one. There you go. <laughs> For a wand? Yeah, man. Wow, okay. They do all sorts of shit. Interesting. <laughs> that booth also had the cleavage wands, which was <laughs> awesome. Yeah. I do. Getting back to the films being adapted, I think it was very interesting that they chose Christopher Columbus because he, uh, because he had done the Page Master, if I'm not mistaken. About I love the Page Master. Page Master was good. Yes, I I awakened you and Tanya to the Page Master, Mm, which was amazing. I read the shit out of that book. It was so good. Yeah, awesome. And it just like quintessential '90s. The more you think about it, you look at the Page Master, you're like, oh, that kind of looks like Dumbledore. Um, Yeah, but just like. That sense of, I think they got him because he understands how to capture whimsy mm-hmm. really well. And I think if you would talk about anything with those first two films, the whimsical element of the Wizarding oh, World is yes. amazing. It's, it's just very magical. Like, you know, something that had been imagined for so long in the hearts and minds of so many kids who held this series so near and dear to their heart, being able to look and see that wall open to Diagon Alley for the first time mm-hmm. sure. or seeing yeah. the, the rowboats going to the castle for the first time was just so amazingly magical like I remember being in the sixth grade and sitting in the theater and just watching it and just being like in such awe of what was Mm. before me because so much of it was also exactly how I'd imagined as well which was amazing absolutely yeah and I think like and of course like what adds to that just thinking of that one scene when they go across the boats for the first time uh, is John Williams' score. Like, John oh, Williams' so score. Good. And I think one of the one of the things is it's really interesting because if you look at the score for Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets, it's the same music that's just been reworked and placed in different spots. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what... Not one of my favorite adaptations, but Prisoner of Azkaban, I loved the soundtrack for most because that was when John Williams really took that sort of darker turn with the music as well. And you still had that bit of Hedwig's theme whimsy, but he started to bring in things like the harpsichord or the dulcimer, especially in there's the scene where they're in the Shrieking Shack and... um, when in the scenes with Wormtail, Peter Pettigrew especially, there's this little kind of like sneaky harp sound or like right. harpsichord sound Absolutely, that plays, yeah. which I love. And then it's so unfortunate that he couldn't come back and do all of the other ones as well because you had John Williams for 
the first three, and then... Uh, I think he was the first and the third, because they had someone else borrow the, a lot of his stuff. Yeah, I think it was someone someone with the last name of Ross uh, just reworked. So, I mean, it's still all technically John Williams' music, right, but it right. was just reworked for different scenes. So, I mean, I would still say two is John Williams. Fair and enough. then I think you had uh, Patrick Doyle for four... Nicholas Hooper for five, and then Alexandra Desplat for uh, six, and both of seven. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which what is which is interesting. Legacy of directors, though. Huh? Yeah. yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, because those were those were just the composers. Like the the directors were you know Chris Columbus for the first two, and then. Um, Alfonso Cuarón. Alfonso Cuarón. Alfonso Cuarón. Was amazing. Prisoner of Azkaban was terrifying. There were, um, yeah. there were, there were issues I had with Prisoner of Azkaban when it came out. I think just because mm-hmm. it was so vastly different from this very whimsical environment yeah. that Columbus had set up, and I understand the overall darkening of mm-hmm. the tone. There mm-hmm. were just certain artistic choices that Cuarón made that I, as a viewer, did not enjoy. And mm-hmm. I think Prisoner of Azkaban is one of the movies in the series that you either really like mm-hmm. or really dislike right Mm -hmm. i remember seeing it for the first time and being somewhat disappointed in it Mm -hmm. but as i've gotten older like i go back and it's it's not as bad as i thought it was Mm -hmm. it was just such a shock from what columbus had said so the transition was fairly sharp well the big one was like when they were not in their wizarding robes yeah they had very like almost they had very unfashionable clothing but they it still kind of I mean, made it, sense it wasn't it wasn't necessarily unfashionable i mean it just looked like what kids would wear the one issue yeah. i had was not necessarily with quran it was with whoever was doing the script treatment for that one in the scene where they they've taken harry and hermione have taken the time turner back and they're outside hagrid's hut and they see the three past versions of themselves in there and it's right before hermione throws the stone into the hut to break the milk pitcher or whatever and she's looking through the window and before she throws the stone she has this line where she says is that really what my hair looks like from the back and that's such a horrible un-Hermione-esque line I didn't see the need why it had to be in there and yes I understand Hermione is a girl that has girly thoughts like you know everyone else but in that moment that's not something that that character would be focused on well I I remember reading an article about how Quaron was going to shake things up when it was coming out and he wanted to emphasize that this is the first story where we acknowledge that they are teenagers right now, right? And it really kind of makes it more of a turn to that in the fourth movie. But mm. like the thing, like they said that like they were not going to be spending most of their time in their robes. And I thought, oh my god, is that, is that even what the books are like? And I remember feeling yeah. very uneasy about it, and then realizing that actually no, it the things they did, yeah, they made <laughs> some concessions here and there with the characters, but yet they they kind of made them more, I think, connectable to. A teenage audience. Yeah, I could I could see that. Um, mm. One of the other things I disliked was the the shrunken head in the night bus. Oh god, that was yeah, something that I was really disturbing. I really didn't like. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that was a little weird. That was definitely a little weird. Because the the thing is, I liked... The the characters of Stan Shunpike and Ernie Prang were very rich in the book, especially Stan Shunpike is this kind of very awkward, almost like college dropout kind of character working on the bus with, you know, the very prominent acne and the, the prominent Cockney accent. They were such rich characters in the book. And to have... That that scene was done very quickly, 
And I think just to show the quickness of it was this weird little shrunken head, but I, I was not a fan of that either. Mm. So who were the other directors aside from the two you've already named? So, so it was Chris Columbus got... for the first two, and then it was Alfonso Cuaron for three, mm-hmm. um, Mike, Newell. Mike Newell for four. He's directed uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, mm-hmm. most notably. Um and David, David Yates. Yates. David Yates. Four, five through eight. Yeah. 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 And then there's a whole slew of producers, but the main writers were Steve Cloves for one through four and then six through eight. And interestingly enough, Michael Goldenberg only wrote the fifth film. Hmm. And I'm interested to hear like why you think he was only chosen for that project. That's, and that's an interesting one, too, because the fifth film is the shortest of all the, yeah. the movies. Yeah. Um, and it's also the one that I think some people have the most contention with too well because the thing is the the fifth film is the longest book and a lot of that is because there's a lot of side plots going on as well there's the main storyline of umbridge at hogwarts and the prophecy and you know if you read if you read the book there's um you know more that one i think was jk rowling's moment of cement of cementing this is when they're teenagers because it's Mm -hmm. you know that's what quran tried to do with the third movie but it's what rowling tried to do with the fifth book you see more of them in that onset of like awkwardly trying to get relationships and um, uh, you know, the it's famous kiss with Cho Chang. And- oh, God. oh God, and Harry was such a kind of a dick to her. Which is so <laughs> unfortunate. Um, and then uh, there, the whole plot line of Ron playing Quidditch was scrapped for the movie, and then that was placed in the sixth film instead. Mm. The whole like Ron trying to get onto the Quidditch team. That's that's a plot line in the fifth right. book. And of course, the famous like the Weasleys are king bit. Like that was a great yeah plot line that like. That, yeah, that was something that was completely cut out. Yeah. Um, in addition, I think Fred and George's kind of escape from Hogwarts was severely underplayed as well. For sure. Part of that is because throughout all the films, one of the elements that was cut out was the character of Peeves the Poltergeist. and. Right. Peeves is, so the Hogwarts plays uh, host to several ghosts, and there's these house ghosts that are assigned to each of the different houses, but then there's also other random ones, and then Peeves is this little poltergeist that lives in the castle and likes to cause mischief all over, and he's a character that was ultimately cut from the films because it was someone that... Chris Columbus wanted to be able to have in there, but they could never, they didn't quite have the technology to be able to do it right. And then it was something where with the the way that the script was, it was very hard to kind of put him in there as right. well. They had they did have someone cast and did voiceover work for him and everything. It's just an element that was ultimately cut from the film. Sure. Which... Throughout the story, Peeves doesn't necessarily contribute much except to be kind of comic relief. And he's almost a deus ex machina in many situations as well. Like, oh, Harry and Ron are stuck in Filch's office. A vase crashes over in this corner of the castle and Filch has to leave to go get it. Peeves is very much that deus ex machina figure that can be used to get them out of sticky situations. Um, Yeah. I mean, other ghosts, too. Like, they underused Nearly Headless Nicholas past the second movie. Right. And I remember that when Harry, like in the fifth book, in Order of the Phoenix, when Harry is dealing with Sirius's death, he re- he turns to Nearly Headless Nick because he thought maybe is there a chance that Sirius will come back as a ghost? And he has to right. kind of explain what it really means to be a ghost in that world that you actually have to kind of decide whether you want to continue on or not. And he, like the whole story about him regretting uh, sticking around uh, right. and not moving on. Uh, and also, like, the Bloody Baron. Like, you see him in the first 
movie for two seconds, mm-hmm. and you never hear him again. And there's a whole right. plot line in the yeah other the, the the plot line with the gray lady from Ravenclaw. And even in the books, the gray lady's story is not particularly touched upon until book seven. But you hear a lot more about the bloody Baron and how creepy he is, and how he's right. got these silver blood stains on him even as a ghost, Jeez. and how ridiculous it is. Um, that's definitely something that is underplayed in the films. Yeah, oh. definitely, oh. definitely. And th- and so those elements certainly add richness to the books, but that also makes it challenging to to adapt when you're doing a movie because the movie is all about trying to get it. I think when you're talking about storytelling between film and, and novels, you have to try to hone the story down to what's the central yeah. plot line. Right. Whereas in a novel, you can have five plot lines going on, and that's okay because you have this rich. extra rich space that you can play with. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So those were those were unfortunate concessions that had to be made to get the story to right. a book a movie that was under three hours many, or just under three hours many right? of the, many <laughs> of the concessions that were made had to do with these sort of um you know third tier characters things like ghosts and creatures and other inhabitants of the castle or certain professors even there's a character named professor bins who is initially the one he's the history of magic teacher and the story with him is he's the only professor who is also a ghost because he's made out to be this incredibly boring teacher and the story about him is he died in his sleep in his armchair in front of the fire in the teacher's lounge and then when it was time to go teach class he basically just got up and went to go teach class in ghost form not realizing he was dead because right. he's this such a boring individual yeah, he and... had fallen yeah he had fallen asleep <laughs> close to the so fire and i think sad. the fire actually consumed him wasn't it or no he like that? no he was just old and he died in front of the fire in his sleep in a very boring way yeah. oh um and then he's actually the one who tells the class about the chamber of secrets whereas those were lines that were then given to McGonagall in the film, which Maggie Smith is McGonagall. I love. And that's going to Maggie that out Smith, there. period. Yes. Seriously. She can do no wrong as she, far as I'm concerned. She, I think it was during the shooting of the fifth film, she was actually going through chemo while they were filming. <gasps> was she really? She was going through chemo while they were filming the fifth movie, and so there would be points where, like, in between takes, she would be having to sit down or be in a wheelchair. And there's actually, I think it's, it's the fifth one or it's a different film where there's a great picture of Maggie Smith Smith sitting down in a chair and Daniel Radcliffe is holding an umbrella over her because it was a day he didn't actually have to be on set to shoot. He just wanted to hang out there and he's like, cool, I'm going to hold Maggie's umbrella. I I swear to God, she is like... She's amazing. If you're you're not... Exactly. If you're not into British period dramas, you still have to watch Downton Abbey just for Maggie Smith. Mm -hmm. Oh, she's so snarky. So good. Well, and and I watched watched The Secret Garden endlessly as a child. She was great in The Secret Garden. Her is Mrs. Matlock playing a character that is so vastly different from Professor McGonagall is it's so interesting to see that transformation. Yeah. It was also interesting too because making McGonagall Scottish was I mean yes obviously the name McGonagall right you would think but it was never fully outright said. I think that it was she... I think it was implied because there's a uh, one of the Christmas scenes in one of the books it talks about how she her hat she has like a tartan band on it so right. I think it's implied that she's Scottish mm. right or at least has some sort of Scottish root obviously with her name being what it is yeah mm-hmm. sure sure the thing that um go ahead no it's okay <laughs> uh, the thing I and I know we're jumping around all the books here. Um, <laughs> it's okay. The thing I thought was really important to mention, too, is we have to talk about why Dumbledore was changed in the third movie, too, right? Because right? Richard Harris had been dealing with, speaking of cancer, 
Richard Harris been dealing with lymphoma, and unfortunately, he passed away. I think he, as it was, he was already in poor health when they shot the second movie, and right. they had to. I think they even had to have someone do his some of his. Yeah, I uh, think ADR. He, he passed away. I believe in post production of Chamber of Secrets, oh. and the thing is, his his story of why he be, he took this role of Dumbledore is the sweetest. He he was at a family gathering and he mentioned that he was up for this role and had been offered it, and it was one of his granddaughters that told him, "Grandpa, if you do not if you don't play Dumbledore, I don't know if I can ever talk to you again." The eleven year old granddaughter threatened, and him. he's like, "Well, I I, I couldn't live with that." So I had to take this role. And Richard Harris was just such a wonderful, understanding Dumbledore. And I've had so many people come up to me and they're like, no, but Ian McKellen was totally Dumbledore in one of those films. And it's like, no, he was busy filming Lord of the Rings. Don't don't tell me Ian McKellen was ever Dumbledore because you're wrong. Ian McKellen was offered Dumbledore and I think he turned it down in lieu of playing Gandalf. I think he I think he turned it down also after Richard Harris had passed on because the two those two actors did not particularly get along either. Yeah. And he was like, well, I think it would be an insult to Richard Harris were I to fill his shoes. And then, right. and then, um, you know, he, he was, Ian McKellen was also just like, well, I'm already playing one legendary wizard. Exactly. I don't need to play another one. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I know. He and can't it would have, have been a like, cop out. He can't have a monopoly have. on wizards. <laughs> no, he cannot. <laughs> I am all of the wizards. Yeah. Wizard supreme. Yeah. No, the wizards. He's um, the supreme. Sarah. <laughs> so I think we should go ahead and put a pause on it here. Yeah. Um, and we will save the rest for part two. Too, because of course Woo! with that many Fantastic. movies and books you cannot get it all done in one so yes. um you can look have... forward to in the next episode me giving gina our resident harry potter expert quite a quiz i look Indeed. forward to it challenge that brain and we're challenge gonna accepted <laughs> and we're gonna do it out because we haven't even gotten into like, the whole we we're gonna do a wand duel thing because <laughs> i want to test gina's knowledge of charms and what about your wand? i can uh i can i can school you i'm ready for it do yeah. right, the parkour right. thing in real time <laughs> <laughs> Excited. Uh, okay, you guys, I have to talk about Gone Girl. Okay. I All right. need to talk about Gone Girl. I mean, it's kind of established fact that I'm a David Fincher fanatic. Yes. Like, Agreed. It's, let's... If you guys want to I don't know just how hardcore of a Fincher fan she is, go back to our Fincher episode. I love Brad Pitt 624. It was a real thing. It was my AOL <laughs> screen name for a couple years there. Oh, <laughs> Roxy. <laughs> yeah. Well, that being said, uh, Gone Girl is his newest film. And it is based off of a novel written by Gillian Flynn in 2012. And she actually adapt- made the adapted screenplay around Good. the same time. So Sweet. Fincher had approached her, said, you know, I love your novel. Let's just go for this. If anything, actually, uh, Reese Witherspoon is the original kind of producer. She was the producer for it, yeah. Yeah. So basically, she was kind of one of the original um, advocates for the film to get made. And so I'm sure there was a lot of, you know, interplay there. But Fincher basically approached Gillian Flynn and said, hey, I want to, you know, adapt your novel to the truest form. I love it. I want to stick to it. Let's go for it. And there's actually some interesting factoid about that that when she was writing the adapted screenplay she wanted to keep to the spirit of the book Mm -hmm. but she slightly altered the ending and so she wanted to give the fans of the book a chance to be surprised by the film in a good way in a really good Mm. way and I read what the discrepancy was and honest to god it's not that big of a deal they didn't completely change the plot or anything they just sort of changed the I want to say setting or circumstance as to what the 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 end the the characters end up in the same way the the film ends the same way the book does um but it just 
the the setting of the scene, the final scene, is different. Okay, that's and good. I, I guess that was just you know a thematic choice, right? Sure. Well, I'm glad that there is an author out there who, first off, is bold enough to want to adapt their story themselves. Mm-hmm. That does not happen very often. I wish that a writer would be more bold about right? that. This is her first screenplay. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, also makes the concessions that you, that yes, there are going to need to be things that change because you're dealing with the film medium. Mm-hmm. And I also love that. I love that she says, "Hey." Mm-hmm. If I do it exactly like the way the book is, mm-hmm. the people who know the book will probably still appreciate it, but they won't be have they won't have anything fresh to take from it. Exactly. And I love that, that she took that it's, approach. It's yeah. the Walking Dead approach. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Also, it's... Game of Thrones to an extent yeah. mm-hmm. as well. Very good point. You want to talk about creative freedom, and you want to talk about you using the author of source material as a creative consultant. Yeah. In this regard, Gillian Green had a lot of say and a lot of push. And Flynn. I'm sorry, Gillian Flynn, thank you, um, had a lot of uh, contributions to make. And that's just how awesome Fincher was as a director to say, Mm -hmm. hey, I'm putting faith in you completely. I'm still going to put my twist on it because I'm going to say this. The first half of the film was a very surrealist experience. I almost felt like I was watching Twin Peaks. And I was out with my buddy, Kyle, who's a really big Twin Peaks David Lynch fan. Mm -hmm. David Lynch fan, excuse me. And um, that's all he kept saying. It's like Twin Peaks. It's like Twin Peaks. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> it was too perfect. The whole beginning of the film, it, it's it's setting up a story about a couple. You know, you've got Amy and um, uh, I'm just totally Ben Hoofleck. Ben Hoofleck. Ben Hoofleck. So you've you've got Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. And they play this couple, right? And basically the whole thing is is that it's their fifth wedding anniversary. And on the day of the anniversary, the wife goes missing. And it starts off this whole police investigation mm-hmm. to go find her. Um, and, you know, there's this whole mystery surrounding it. Turns out that there are clues left. And the clues are actually pertaining to the anniversary gift that, you know, she's leading him to. And, uh, it, you know, ties into the mystery of where she is really beautifully. Mm-hmm. But the whole character that um, Rosamund Pike plays. Her name's Amy, right? Such a dynamic and strange and too perfect. She starts out as like a Stepford wife Mm. and you're immediately like disturbed by it. That's how compelling the character really is. Like you are not okay with her being perfect and you realize toward Mm -hmm. toward the end and how the film progresses just why you're so uncomfortable. Because I want to compare... Rosamund Pike's performance as Amy to that of um, Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates. Oh wow! Okay. That's how disturbing it gets. Wow! Wow! Okay. Huh. Well, and so it's it's yeah. interesting because um, Reese Witherspoon has kind of gone out and said that you know she's very interested mm-hmm. in producing more movies, being a part of more movies or whatever that have more complex roles for women, mm-hmm. and that's why she was motivated to do Gone Girl. Nice. And her motivation for all of that comes from. Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants. Such a good book. Oh, my God. Everybody read it. Basically, though, I mean, part of the big reason why I loved this is that you don't really get the sense that it's a typical Fincher movie in the first half. But towards the end, there's a moment when it picks up and you hear the score done by Atticus Rotz. Excuse me. Atticus. uh, who are the composers? The composers are um, the same ones who did Social Network and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. You've got um, the guy from Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Or is it Atticus, Atticus, what's his name? Atticus, Atticus Finch, I think is. Atticus, Atticus Finch is from To Kill a Mockingbird. Mockingbird. <laughs> okay. Jinx. <laughs> let me let me erase everything. Thank you, English majors in the room. You're welcome. We're, like, like, we're like, come on now. <laughs> so the composers are Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor. <laughs> Sean, please. <laughs> I just, oh 
we just wait a minute. <laughs> Let's just get that. That was beautiful. That's gotta stay in. I don't care how much I fucked up. You guys are wonderful. It was a nice stereo. <laughs> <laughs> um, and basically, it was Fincher's chance to make a commentary on how beautifully and wonderfully the media bastardizes murder trials Mm. how it's always about the husband killing the wife and how the husband is the villain and how you have your nancy grace you know kind of (laughs) leading this charge to bastardize men and to say you know there's always it's 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 always you know cut and and dry and there's even a character in the film who's basically a caricature of nancy grace Mm. who's essentially the pundit Yes. Legal expert. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was really interesting how a lot of the actors who were cast in this film were not very likable actors, um, most notably Tyler Perry. Mm-hmm. He's kind of got a reputation mm-hmm. for being, you know, Oprah's whipping boy, right? Like, <laughs> he, you know, makes Oprah movies. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's, he's a little bit of a controversial guy. Real quick, though, can I just say... I, I, mm, is whipping, that a bad? No, I'm just saying the whipping boy turn. <laughs> is that? I had the same thought. I'm just like <laughs> that's that's absolutely a reference okay. to slavery. So I'm just <laughs> like, so then, let me rewind. You He's take kind that of out. Oprah's bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so he makes all these Oprah movies, and you don't really, you don't, people don't really have much respect for Tyler Perry. But the character he played was a really dynamic attorney. Okay, and he basically defends Ben Affleck's character. Mm-hmm. And the way that the character develops, I thought it was just really brilliantly done. That you you learned to, un, you, you, you gained understanding as to why he was cast. And you just, I don't know, I ended up liking Tyler Perry. I don't know why. I don't know. So anyway, I thought it was a really, you know, really good film. And uh, I think people should definitely check it out. They shouldn't come in expecting it to be, you know, at the same caliber as Girl with a Dragon Tattoo or Social Network. It's not. It's a much more subtle, quieter, you know, small cast kind of film. But it's still one of Fincher's best. Cool. I can attest to that. Definitely one of Fincher's great. best. Great awesome. twist ending, great suspense, great writing, great acting. Rosamund Pike, if she does not get nominated, it's a travesty because she okay. deserves a ton of accolades for what great. she was able to accomplish. Yeah, that's in right. I want to see the movie badly. And also, it's nice to see Ben Affleck do yeah. a part again. It's the rise of Ben Affleck. He has been doing really yeah. well. I just saw him do a bit on uh, where he... I didn't watch the whole thing, but he basically just... He basically told... Bill Maher to shut the fuck up. Nice. On, uh, oh, I time. saw that. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? I it don't was know. kind of a good thing. Bill Maher was being an asshole. Oh, yeah. good. Good so, for you, Ben yeah. Affleck. You go, Ben. B- Bill Maher <laughs> is definitely, uh, he's at times a pariah, but I mean, he yeah. he is very anti-religion of all kinds. Uh-huh. And so he made kind of an anti-Muslim comment. Really? Uh, mm-hmm. Which we, which basically Ben Affleck did not take kindly to. And okay. he... Mm-hmm. Showed the fact that, hey, you know, I did go to college. I do actually have an education. I can actually, you know, basically he, yeah. he showed his smart. And, Good. And, I mean, yeah. he is an Oscar yeah. winner. Yeah. And in that sense, I kind of want to end on the note of well, my Kyle, my, my, my Kyle, my friend Kyle <laughs> summarized the film. Gone Girl taught me that white rich ladies are nuts, the media is the devil, and Ben Affleck can sometimes be a good actor. (laughs) Ben Affleck has made some bad choices, but I think it's going to be one of those things, like, over his breadth of work, Mm -hmm. it's going to be more in his favor than not. Sarah, it's mm -hmm. like you said, you do the art picture, then you do the safe picture. There you go. Sometimes you do Rainer games. (laughs) (laughs) And Jennifer Lopez. Oh. Or, yeah, Jersey Girl, Daredevil. Yeah, Gigli. Uh, that was a dark time. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, forces of nature. Exactly. Yes, he had, he had a very dark early 2000s period. <laughs> you know what else had a dark period? Harry Potter. Nice. He did. Oh, you are rocking it with the segue. <laughs> Way to go with the transition I, there, Roxy. Roxy. I'm so proud of Can you. Can we keep you? Seriously. I'm such a proud mama right now. <laughs> I learned from the best. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's why we're here today, right, guys? Yes, it is. It's so, indeed. welcome to Nerds on Film. I'm Sarah Ashley. I'm Brian Moriarty. I'm Roxy Noberry. And, and I'm Gina Giovanetti back again. Yay! Right on. Fourth I love it. episode I love in the row. I love how you just jump okay. in there and intro yourself. It's awesome. She's like, it's mine now. Yeah. That's mine. Was I not supposed to? I apologize. No, you're <laughs> good. We, we've established she is our Potter loader expert. <laughs> Potter loader. Potter also, loader expert. Also, we've established. Name of my fan fiction. <laughs> the Potter loader. <laughs> also, we've established you don't need to apologize so much. Yeah. Damn, Gina. I did it less this time. You have done it less. You've only apologized like once or twice. You gotta keep telling us shit. Uh, well, yeah. All we... right. So where we left off last time, we talked a little bit about casting choices. Mm-hmm. Talked about how the movies be uh, or how the movies came to be from the book and that kind of process where mm-hmm. J.K. Rowling was coming from. And a lot of nerdiness happened, yes. and it was really nice. But we've got more in store, mm-hmm. right? So oh, yeah. where do you guys want to kick it off? I think one of the things that we didn't mention last time was a lot of the effects that came out of the movies. Um, Some of these effects, you kind of see how they get better and better as the films go on, especially when it comes in with um, certain creatures. So when you see dragons or you see the hippogriff or several other creatures, it's this amazing technology that makes these creatures that are so fantastical look so real, specifically... Uh, I'm thinking of Buckbeak, the hippogriff from Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. It looks so fantastic. Buckbeak looks great. Oh, Man. it looks so good. And uh, some of the some of the dragons as well. Um, but in addition to the computer effects, the makeup effects mm-hmm. on a lot of uh, just making so many of these characters look so different, even with just little things that make them look so. Uh, so unique um in uh harry potter and the chamber of secrets there is an actor who played the character of marcus flint who's the slytherin team captain and really all they gave him was were these fake teeth and you just got this very maniacal sort of creepy look from him when he's commanding his team um, makeup on a lot of Voldemort, the, on y'all. Voldemort. A lot of Voldemort Creepy. was mocap though. So that, that would like, when you see the pictures of Ray Fiennes on set, he's got all the mocap dots really? on his face. Okay. So a lot of that was mocap. I'm talking a lot about the goblins in ah, Gringotts, especially. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. Warwick Davis played a yeah. number of parts with great yeah, makeup. He was, Warwick he, Davis is so cool. He's yes. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> i got to watch Willow again. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because yeah, because he played Flitwick and he was one of the goblins. From yeah, um, he was. Oh, what's the goblin's name? Griphook. Yes, uh, that's right. The main that's one right. who takes them through. That's and right. The one that gets captured. No, in the, uh, uh, letter books. he plays. I think he plays Griphook later. So Griphook oh. is the one that actually takes them down. Um, who was actually. Um, What's his name? Vern Troyer from the Austin Powers. My movie. apologies, oh my God, Vern so Troyer. Funny. Thank he you. He was he was Griphook, but uh, War- uh, Warwick Davis is that first goblin that they encounter. That's you know the oh does Mister Harry Potter have his key? And they pull the tiny key out to right. the, wait, the vault. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute! 
Mini-Me is in Harry Potter? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Are you fucking kidding me? No, I am not. Is I shit only, you not. Is he the only American then? I think there were, there were like one or two American people that like slipped into the cast, Ooh. but uh, it was principally an all British cast. This is, this is ridiculous. <laughs> You're blowing my mind here because the last I ever saw really <laughs> of Vern Troyer was on that celebrity house <laughs> reality show <laughs> where he got completely life, hammered yeah. and fell off his little like his wheelie little thing <laughs> no he was he was grip hook in uh in at least the first installment of harry potter i believe it was warwick davis or someone in the other ones but yeah. it was my in, in stone is blown like yeah. like what a fall from grace I literally just... <laughs> <laughs> sorry for Troyer. Wow. Anyway, go on. Yeah. Um, but the the makeup effects on that are absolutely amazing. Um, Definitely. But we, I know we did talk a lot about makeup when we discussed Lord of the Rings the last couple weeks as well, um, and you know the all the differences in that. And I would say between the two, some of the effect, some of the makeup, especially in Lord of the Rings, is a little bit more impressive than what you see in Harry Potter because in Harry Potter there's very few creatures that are these kind of human hybrids that you mm-hmm. need that sort of practical makeup effects for whereas there are many more that are these you know sort of upright sort of characters in Lord of the Rings but what you do see in Harry Potter is fantastic yeah and it's interesting that they make those decisions too because I mean they chose to make all the goblins people with practical and yet all the elves are computer generated in right. that world. But is that the, is that the little guy? The house elves, Dobby, yeah. yeah. Well, he's not the only house elf. No, there are the... many house elves. Yes, but he's the only one that made it into the film series. Uh, cre- technically, Creature did that's make true. it into Cre- the films, right. but briefly. Yeah. They never really touched on the importance of Creature, and that's actually something that J.K. Rowling, as a creative consultant on the films, um made sure was still included because creature one of the scenes that was cut out is in harry potter and the order of the phoenix when they go to 12 grimald place there's this whole chapter where they're cleaning things out and finding things in drawers and the whole story with the the 12 grimald place home is that it used to be it was Sirius Black's childhood home it was the noble and most ancient house of black and so Sirius Black doesn't necessarily like to be there because his family was very um like pure blood mania um they, they would have been fans of Voldemort. They would have, have exactly. They're yeah. they're somewhat they were they were a family almost akin to the Malfoys. Yeah, and and you find out that um, Bellatrix and the Malfoys and Sirius Black are all related because technically all the purebloods are all related. But... Shocking. Exactly. Um, But one of the things about Creature is that he is this house elf that's been with the family for so long and has such a fanatical devotion to them. And there's a picture of Sirius's mother who then this picture is always covered by curtains. And if you uh, if you, you know, blow the curtains open, she starts screaming at you and, you know, telling you like, oh, there's blood traitors in my house. Like she hates that there are people that are not these pure blood wizards in her house. But Creature is so devoted to... To this family he's almost hoarding old relics of the family and the locket that you that later turns out to be one of the horcruxes salazar or yeah with salazar slytherin's locket um 
That's actually something that is briefly mentioned in this house cleanout chapter of right. Order of the Phoenix. And, you know, you find out later that it's something that maybe Creature had or it was in that house that was later yeah. taken out by someone. A character also, um, Mundungus Fletcher, who is someone who would kind of steal things from that house and then sell it on, like secondhand on the market or whatever. He was a character that was cut out as right. well. And Creature's a big deal, too, um, especially because he has his own little arc in the seventh book he does yeah but there's a great line that dumbledore has in the book that never made into the film which was that when he reveals that creature was behind sirius black's basically behind what led to sirius black's death Mm -hmm. you're like well how could he have done that he was sirius's uh sirius was his master and he says creature says creature has had a second master for some some time now Mm -hmm. you basically find out that really it wasn't sirius it was more or less sirius's mother yeah who he was being loyal to uh and because Sirius was the only living black left he felt like this obligation right. to serve but yet he wasn't he was more true to again to the yeah. black family he and... was he was more true to like the mother and then specifically Sirius's brother Regulus Regulus who, yes. who who had the note left in the locket at the end in the dummy locket he's that you know R.A.B. in that Regulus Arturus Black right interesting right interesting hmm. But yeah, he's he's one of he is one that just barely made it in. And J.K. Rowling said, you know, you might want to make sure that creature is at least shown and mentioned because of this side plot with where the locket right. is as well. Yeah, it's and he's on the he's really in the film for. I mean, they kind of tweaked it in the seventh movie because Dobby, I guess, kind of gets creature to turn around in yeah. the seventh one. Where in the book, it's Harry showing kindness to, to creature. creature that gets him to turn around and then all of a sudden he becomes the most loyal pro right. he, uh you know mudblood or which i you know pro muggle born or half mudblood is a slur brian <laughs> well we are an explicit <laughs> podcast <laughs> even when it comes to like nerd language i did not hear anyone declare akbar so um and it, it was contextual so anyway <laughs> and, and, and anyway um it's <laughs> a racial it is well. I mean, wow, hey. we are just two it's, for two tonight. Aren't we? we just call it the mud word, okay? It's yeah, the mud word. The M word. The M word. He can't say, he can't say the, the M, M word because then that can mean muggle. Well, and that's fine. Brett, is something interesting. The fact that we're even talking about like people like Voldemort. Like, are we gonna get cursed for me bringing up his name at all? <laughs> no, that's what it, no. no. It's not. It's not. It's not a Beetlejuice kind of thing. You don't say Voldemort, and he just shows up. The only time that God, happened was. Not. Most people, the whole idea of people calling him, you know, you know who or he who must not be named is they it's it kept that fear alive in them Mm. almost. Whereas Harry, by saying the name Voldemort, confronted that fear. But the Death Eaters found out that not many people were actually saying the name Voldemort because they were still living in fear. So in the final film, um, that this is a plot line that was cut. They just get found by the Death Eaters in the woods. But what they do is they put a tracer on the name Voldemort. And so it's the spell that can kind of sense whenever the name Voldemort is spoken, they will then have like almost like a like a sensor that will almost like a GPS honing system that will be like, oh, it was said over here. Someone over here is, you know, part of the resistance. Right. Uh, so it was only members of the resistance that were actually using Voldemort's so, name. So like the yeah. ring wraiths who know when. Exactly. Basically, the yeah. Well, I mean, it's really more detective work because they figure we'll Potter, we already know, is not afraid to use the name. So if we're going right. to find Potter, we'll have to put a trace on it in there. Exactly. But I think they they kind of implied that maybe that's what it was like pre, pre you know, the opening scene of 
Sorcerer's Stone that maybe he had Voldemort had put a trace on the word no matter what, for anybody who said it. And... It was, it, that was, just, it was just more of a fear hysteria thing. Um, it's though. like saying Macbeth in a theater. Yeah. Yeah. And then it was one of the other plot lines that was cut out was this whole like radio code system in the seventh book as well, where members of the this resistance would be able to tune into a certain radio station. And right. it was Fred and George and Lee Jordan and a couple others that were um, like transmitting these kind of messages of hope over the radio to those who who knew what this signal right. was. And the thing I got like when they when they translate this to the movies is that when essentially when Voldemort's back and I can't remember his name but he's the the puppet minister of magic essentially um not, not fudge no uh, fudge fudge was sacked and yeah they, it and was they killed, it was fudge they killed Shacklebolt uh, um, no they didn't kill Shacklebolt they killed um no right Shacklebolt was Shacklebolt the, becomes yeah, Mr. No, magic right the they, they killed um they killed Bill Nye Scrimgeour, Scrimgeour. Scrimgeour yeah yeah they killed Bill Nye yeah <laughs> they killed Bill <laughs> yeah, Rufus. They killed Rufus Scrimgeour, and right. then uh, they installed one of the other right. Uh, oh, ministers. I'm forgetting what his name is, and it's bothering me. Yeah, I'll figure. Well, out anyway, there. we'll we'll figure mm-hmm. it out. But what they essentially do is they you have this sense that it's almost like Nazi Germany. Yeah, and that yeah, that's that's what that's what kind of was established as the the pre like when when Dumbledore defeated Grindelwald. That was the kind of idea like oh like if you look at the timeline of that it sort of lined up with world war ii 1945 yeah yeah, and so so grindelwald was almost like the the wizarding version of um Hitler? Of Hitler. And so Voldemort is almost like a neo-Nazi kind of trying to bring those <laughs> Even ideas Even with the bald back. head. Go exactly. <laughs> trying to bring those ideas back. So disturbing. Oh, I love yeah. it. But it. But it was cool that they were able to establish that sense of fear because you got that in the seventh movie for sure. Like you got the sense right. of if they that get running. caught, they are going to die. Yeah. Like right. They were they are going to get killed. They're going to be put in like a back alley and they're going to yeah. have, you what? know, Avada Kedavra. Yeah. Bam. You're mm-hmm. done. So what would you guys say is kind of like, I don't know, there's like a lot of charms, spells, devices, things <laughs> like that going on in this movie. What what are like some of your favorites that come up? Um, the one that is only kind of muttered is like, I love Protego. Protego is just the, the shield the, charm. The shield protection. Oh. That, that Ginny just kind of mutters in the fifth book, but ends up being like this massive, like, shockwave that she knocks down a bunch of death eaters yeah there's that one and then there was also um reducto which is where it like it blows it blew a bunch of stuff up as well i thought i think so Uh, accio is always great where you you can call it what's the one where hermione fixes ron's glass or no harry's Harry's glasses glasses. oculus Oculus reparo Reparo. yes there's also wait 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 what's the scene where i think it's in azkaban she gets the necklace, and it's a really disturbing moment when the student, like, she gets the necklace, and they're outside in the snow. Oh, that's in that's in up. six. Is it the that's in film? six because oh, okay. that starts to establish like the dark magic. It's basically things. the necklace is cursed, and mm-hmm. it was meant to be delivered to I don't know if it was delivered to McGonagall or, or to Dumbledore. I think it was meant to go to Dumbledore, but it okay. was intercepted by Katie Bell. Thank I believe. you. Right. That's the, yeah, and she put it on, and she, she put it on. It's the, it's the moment the, you see her face, right? Also that's that's, that's one gate. of those cool things that is a callback to Chamber of Secrets when Harry first ends up in Borgen and Burke's the in in Nocturne Alley he looks at several different things one of which is the vanishing cabinets there's the hand of glory which mm. Malfoy does end up using later when the death eaters have their assault on the castle and then one of them is this beautiful necklace of op- 
Staples that says, like, you know, Don't Touch has claimed the lives of over six muggles or something. What does it do? It's, I think it's imbued with, like, a very, with a very mild form of the Cruciatus curse, which mm-hmm. there's three, there's, like, the three unforgivable curses. There's Avada Kedavra, um, the Cruciatus curse, and the Imperius curse. So Imperio is the one where you can control people. It's basically possession is what it is. Yeah, it's okay. basically possession. The Cruciatus curse is the torture curse, where hence, like, it sounds like crucifixion, crucify. It's a very, like, pain-ridden thing, and that's used for, like, interrogation. You'll continually right. crucio someone in order to get them to talk, and then Avada Kedavra is the immediate killing the, curse. The killing There's curse, no coming yeah. back from Shop that. Her- um, there um, is... I think it's actually the Imperious Curse that is being used on the Minister of Magic that is the puppet Minister of Magic. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. They're using, yeah, because yeah, they basically, they know that, and they basically, they tortured him and they broke him to where they, because you can resist the Imperious Curse. That's the one thing that you learn in the yeah, fourth book. You can, yeah, you can, because that's with uh, with Moody, the, you know, constant vigilance. It's, you know, the, right. what he does with Harry is he has, he has, he, he tests the Imperious Curse on Harry and tries to get him to, like, jump into the desk and hurt himself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the fact that Harry delays jumping that Moody's able to say, well, look at him. He fought back. And if he tried even harder, he would have been able to resist it entirely. Interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the Polyjuice Potion. Polyjuice Potion is cool. Yes. And what then, does that do? Polyjuice the... Potion is what? Sorry, go ahead. I'm. Yeah. You guys are going to have to explain <laughs> everything yeah. okay, to so, me, by so the way. So the Polyjuice Potion, <laughs> it takes a long time to make, and it's this disgusting, days. thick... Bubbly. It looks like milk that you've let boil over and then just thicken. Or like, or like when you're when you're boiling, when you're like melting down sugar okay. and it blackens and you've uh, like burned it and yeah. it looks nasty. It kind of looks like that. It, it's a more. It's basically it's a shape shifting potion. Yeah. You put a, a piece of somebody you're trying to turn into. It only works on people. You're not supposed to use it for animals. No. Nope. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's the animagus thing. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, you drink it. And it essentially, for a short period of time, converts you into that person. They used it a couple times. Once as for Crab and Goyle in the second mm-hmm. book. But more importantly, in the seventh book, where they... become it, She becomes Bellatrix. And he becomes uh, Lucius, is it? Or no, it's not Lucius. No, he becomes... Um, what's his name? Uh, there are these two uh, He characters. becomes another Death Eater. Yeah. I forget what his Well, basically, is. wasn't there a whole opening scene in one of the later films where they go and infiltrate the Ministry of Magic right. as, like, three characters who, like, work, mm-hmm. and one of them is being interrogated, and it was Hermione who's uh, playing a, a, one of the employees, basically. Yeah. Right. Or no, no, there's a scene where she's being interrogated as Bellatrix. Well, they're, when they're talking to, to her and it's just like, she wants to get into her vault. And yeah. It's the, yeah you know, I don't one. like to be kept waiting. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then there's the one where they, they go in as just like the three regular employees. Yeah, and Weasley's playing one of like the minister employees. I think his wife is being questioned for yeah. something. The wife is yeah. being yeah. questioned. Yeah, and Bellatrix yeah. like gets the wife freed basically. And that's that's when all the shit hits the fans. So. Yeah, <clears throat> of course, Patronus. Expecto Patronum, indeed, mm-hmm. the Patronus charm. So yeah. what would you say is your Patronus? Oh, I'm just going to, one One of the most heartbreaking <laughs> yeah. things, though, is J.K. Rowling has said that after the events of the seventh book, George Weasley was never, ever able again to uh, able to conjure Patronus again oh. because life is no longer happy without his twin brother. And that just shattered my heart because those are also my favorite characters, Fred and George Weasley. And yeah. like when I was reading that scene, I made this kind of like, ah! sound in my throat yeah. and my mom was like wait what happened and I'm just like no just leave me alone for a minute just like, walk it that, off that, that scene was somewhat glazed over in the movies which and you, you also missed out on Percy's redemption arc as well because the whole thing is when that scene happens in the book 
Percy has become kind of a ministry crony. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, he comes back right at that moment and he's starting to fight off Death Eaters and he's pulling jokes with his brothers again. And then a wall collapses and Fred Weasley dies. Why? Yeah. <laughs> because life is cruel. Thank yeah, you. exactly. So explain the Patronus thing to me. Yeah. Okay, so the Patronus... Isn't it like your spirit animal? Pretty much. Basically. Essentially, mm-hmm. so what it is, is it's a it's considered advanced magic. Usually mm-hmm. Aurors learn it um, when you work for the... Aurors are essentially the watch men of mm-hmm. uh, the like minister cops. of night. Yeah, the wizard, wizard police, cops. exactly. They're wizard they are. cops. Let's be wizard so cops. Harry actually wants to become an Auror. That's, yeah. that's his thing. Right. So, um, Do you... Aurors have jobs after the events of the seventh book? That's all I'm wondering. There's, there will always be another dark wizard, Apparently right? Apparently they do, but yeah. it's like really... Uh... Yeah, exactly. Oh. Any, anyway, um, so... What... If they can keep making lethal weapon movies. <laughs> <laughs> The Patronus charm um, was taught to Harry in the third book by... Remus uh, Lupin. Remus Lupin, thank you. Who was the only ever good Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher that there's ever been. Moody wasn't a bad uh, DADA teacher. It just turned out it wasn't actually Moody. Moody, exactly. It was Barty Crouch. Um, Barty Crouch Jr.? Barty Crouch Jr. I know. Be specific, right? Stay focused. Explain fucking Patronus. Sorry. Sorry. And Lupin does it because the Dementors, these basically these creatures that are used to guard as a command prisoner, are being used to protect Harry uh, at Azkaban because they believe Sirius Black is out and loose and he's going to be so the thing is that Dementors are literally soul suckers like if you get a Dementors kiss they literally suck your soul out of your body and you're left as just a husky human being who's still alive biologically but not but dead spiritually so uh, as a means of warding off the Dementors Lupin um, and because Harry's kind of weak to Dementors Lupin teaches him the, the, the Patronus charm and it's you have to think of a happy moment and you have to use that happy thought to summon your your Patronus. When Harry conjures his, he gets. It's usually for most people, it comes a just a, wisp, a silvery wisp of magic. The, no, everyone everyone who's able to conjure one, like the wisp, is very weak and it's not going to work. You actually have to have like it will become some form of animal once you get once up to you that get level. developed exactly. Nice. And and he doesn't fully learn the full Patronus charm until. Uh, till the basically the the climax of the third book, and you, it's funny because everyone's Patronus has said something about who they are. So Harry's is uh, stag. is a stag, and the stag is prongs. Prongs. It was his father's animagus. The exactly. thing with the thing with Patronus is animagi are characters in the wizarding world uh, who have the ability to change into another animal. So in the third book, let me just okay. clarify this. Yeah, yeah. I was just kind of thinking like a stag. Is he like really into okay. bachelor parties? So, <laughs> so going back to so Remus Lupin, Peter Pettigrew, James Potter, and Sirius Black. Right. All close friends yes. in during when they were all going to Hogwarts. This I actually know. Mm-hmm. Yes. This is Remus Harry Lupin the original is not an animagus. No, Remus Lupin is a werewolf. But because he would have to go and become a werewolf for four days of the of the month. They had to hide it because if anyone had found out he was a werewolf, he would have been kicked out of Hogwarts. That's was why this the guy that's why the Whomping Willow was, was in, planted there. Was this the guy who was in Dragonheart? Yeah, yes, yeah, David Lewis. Yeah. Okay. Yes. One, one of the things I'm going to say real quick is I really did not like his character design in Prisoner of Azkaban. The man looked like a damn pedophile, and so when he's like, "Oh, Harry, come into my office," I'm just like, "No, don't go in there. What are you doing?" <laughs> we're, going, we're getting up, we're getting up tracking. Sorry. We're getting up tracking. It's okay. So. To keep him company, because he basically would have to go into the shack and become a werewolf, um, they decided they were going to experiment and they were going to turn themselves into animagi, which is uh, an elaborate and dangerous form of magic. Because usually you're born an animagi, an animagus. You don't, you can't become, you become one. one. So they, they end up all learning that capability. So 
Uh, when they do that, James becomes the ability, gains the ability to turn into a stag. Uh, Wormtail slash Peter Pettigrew becomes a rat, hence the name Wormtail. And Sirius Black gains the ability to turn into a dog. Okay. So Prongs, Padfoot, Wormtail, and uh, Mooney were all the names of the Marauders of the Marauders map. It's because you basically find out that they were also they are the ones who invented it. Okay. So, and they were all the code names. I didn't think you had to, I didn't think you had to be born an animagus. You had to be born a metamorphagus, which is what Tonks is. But I thought you, if you were just very, very advanced magically, you could become an animagus. And that's the whole thing. Like you had to register as an animagus right. as well. Right. And the, those ones were non-registered as an animagus. In addition, um, Rita, Skeeter, Rita is Skeeter is also an unregistered animagus. Rita Skeeter. Because she, Gosh. you find out in the fourth book, she can transform into a beetle and that's how she would kind of fly around and get all of these very secret Juicy conversations gossip, yeah. that she would then yeah. perform so uh, you know report on yeah indeed yeah yeah um but like example mcgonagall is an animagus she can transform into, into a cat. cat okay yes. yeah yes but she was so, born an animagus so you she was yeah, she was yeah okay that i yeah. don't remember yeah. okay yeah so then what's your what do you what are your respective trope so I'm trying to figure. I'm trying to figure out what, because I'm. I know that the Harry's. It, the thing is, Patronuses can also change form depending mm. on your emotions and what you are. Because I don't know what Snape's was originally, but currently Snape's Patronus is the doe, which is um, after Lily, which Lily's. is because he was so in love with Lily Evans, who then married James Potter and right, became right. Lily Potter. Like that is because of his love for her. Like his became the doe. Um, Hermione's is an otter and Ron's is some sort of small dog. I <laughs> don't remember. I, uh, I think, I think it's Cho's is a swan. Gina. Gina. I don't remember what, but what do you want yours? I don't know what, what mine would, would be. be yours? Come on, pick one. I think a, a friend told me mine would be like some form of cat, but it's, <laughs> that's kind of generic. Mine okay, would so. be, mine would be Tina Belcher. Can I? Can Tina I, Belcher. That's has no. I know. Because she's a beast. You can't can actually do that. Can she's I, a beast. Well, I have a question. Can Can Batman be my Patronus? Yes, <laughs> because that's who I would want. Technically, yes. Because I want like to go expecto Patronum, and all of a sudden this Batman comes out and says, "Where is she? Where, where is the Trigger Man? Where is he?" Very nice. Uh, um, actually, probably mine would be a bear. A bear. Yeah, dope. Yeah. I don't know. I want to say like a wolf, maybe. Cool. I like wolves. I'd be a moose. <laughs> a, a moose. <laughs> just because she's Canadian. Just rocks Canadian. Rocks his blast out of the water and it's just like. Well, I did. I did see. I did see a post that someone had made that was like, well. Everyone has these small animals. I want to see someone's Patronus be like a blue whale that just rolls <laughs> and just like just smashes rolls. exactly. That would be great. I would also like to see someone's like be like it would be kind of cool if you find out you know the um, the evil Patronus is like there's one that's like a scorpion or something that like that. That would be dope. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, or a dragon. A dragon's Patronus would be fucking amazing. Sweet. Yeah. Just be moosing along. Moosing along. Moosing along. Yeah, don't you know. I wonder if that's going to be the moose jaws theme. Yes. Do-dum. <laughs> Do-dum. Don't you know. Don't you know. Do- I'm going to kill you, don't you know. <laughs> oh. So he's a talking moose, apparently. Stereotypes. Wow. I love them. Nice. Fantastic. So, um... So that's pro- yeah probably my that's what we would go for awesome. for, for Patroni. <laughs> okay, uh, listeners, what's mine? <laughs> what's Sarah's? Yeah. What's Sarah's Patronus? Let um, me know. Uh, I would say though, <laughs> gosh, like, I have, I have like ideas. no fucking clue. 
I'm not exactly sure what they do still because we never got to that okay, point. So, okay, so <laughs> spirit animals. They, you know? they repel. They repel dementors. Oh. They kind of. They're a happy thought that kind of has this protective shield around you and mm. will take badness away basically okay. and so they're they're made to repel yeah. these dementors that are these soul-sucking happiness wasting things yeah. that basically were, were route that have been wrangled by the ministry didn't, of magic mm-hmm. didn't terry save um what what was his brother serious black no no no, no his is his uh his dudley. Nice brother, his cousin. dudley he saved yeah. dudley from a dementor he yes. did yeah because you find yeah, out that uh death yeah eater. yeah when no, no, it was, it was a Dementor. Was a Dementor? Yeah. Oh, okay. Death Eaters are Voldemort's followers. Dementors are the, the hooded Thank soul suckers. Yeah. So he, he saved so, him from a little, yeah. That one. Yeah, and the Dementor, um, you basically find out in the end of the fifth book, that when it's confirmed undeniably that Voldemort is back, um, that you find that the Dementors are no longer following uh, the orders of the Ministry of Magic. They're following Voldemort. Voldemort. Oh, wow. So now everyone's on their guard. And the, the Pachigo, the shield charm will not work on them. And essentially, it's there to protect you from more advanced forms of dark magic. Yeah, which I think the reason I bring that up is because that was really a kind of a turning point for their relationship. Because the Dudley, yeah, like the, that's Dudley. What's the family name again? Dursley. The Dursleys. Thank you. That's something that was definitely also unfortunately cut from the yeah. film was Dudley and Harry's relationship towards the end because Dudley's a real shitbag to Harry <laughs> like the whole yeah. at least one through five. But then once Harry saves him, there's this very kind of like okay, I respect and appreciate you a little mm-hmm. bit more. And there's this great line when Harry is leaving the house for the, last, in, time, for the yeah. last time. And Dudley has this one line where he he says, like, you're not a waste of, I don't think you're a waste of space or something. You saved my life, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's like, I don't, it, and it, the line is specifically, I, I don't think you're a waste of space. And it's, it's just so... It's this one line that just it's it doesn't necessarily forgive everything, but it's kind of like slapping a band aid on it a little yeah. bit. Yes. You the Dursleys play such a huge part yeah. in right. the whole, you know, narrative sure. of Ron or Harry's life. So of definitely. Course. There yeah. needs to be closure in that regard, and I don't really yeah. feel like they gave too much they, closure. They to didn't the put a they unfortunately also cut a scene where it's Petunia talking about Lily and how it she's kind of telling Harry, you know, you weren't the only one who lost someone that night. You lost your parents, but I lost my sister. And there's a lot of this backstory about Lily and Petunia and uh, little Snape as Mm -hmm. well, Mm -hmm. because they were all childhood friends. And then Snape knew he was from a magical family, but Lily was this, you know, muggle born that got this letter and Petunia felt so left out because she didn't get one. Mm -hmm. And so this sort of animosity that she had towards her sister is this jealousy that her sister was you know quote unquote special and she wasn't and there was then this divide that came between them I mean right. Lily and Petunia like mm-hmm. uh, yeah. the characterizations of the two of them of exactly. course is going yeah. to be they're going to be the adversary to each other yeah there's also a great scene in the sixth book that they never put in and it's essentially basically in the beginning where Dumbledore comes and collects Harry uh, directly because again we've established that Voldemort is now back so for his mm-hmm. protection Dumbledore gathers him and brings him to Hogwarts directly mm-hmm. uh, and he basically sets the ground rules and says look next year Harry's going to turn the age of 17 that means that he's no longer going to be under your protection um, but we need to, but he has to return for one last summer because his birthday mm-hmm. falls in August essentially mm-hmm. and um you know, they're, they're giving him, and they're basically, they don't like Dumbledore, of course, the Dursleys, and Uncle Vernon's giving him crap. And finally, 
Voldemort just finally very calmly or Dumbledore. Don't sorry, thank you. <laughs> Dumbledore just finally just basically calmly rebukes them. Mm-hmm. Said look, said look, all we've asked you to do this entire time was watch over Harry mm-hmm. and treat him and give him some love and give him make him feel like he was loved. And you haven't done that. Mm-hmm. You've treated him. They, I'm paraphrasing, of course. It's like they basically said you've treated him like he was unwelcome. Mm-hmm. And they basically, he basically just does that, gives Harry the defending that he never got as a kid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where like Vernon and Petunia look kind of remorseful at realizing that they've 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 fucked up. Like yeah. they, they oh, yeah, good. And, I'm and, glad that happened. And again, all because of Petunia's jealousy about her sister. Right. Yeah. Right. I'm not gonna lie, guys. I stopped reading the series after the fifth book because I Harry I was just, kind of a little pissant in it. I, I got a little overwhelmed by it all. I mean, I, when I started reading the books as a kid, I wouldn't be able to read them at night because I would get nightmares. <laughs> I mean, there was just okay. such, such rich language and such rich imagery that, let's be honest, Harry Potter touches on some really dark, dark mm-hmm. themes. Yeah, And the does. whole thing about Death theaters? are you fucking kidding me? That's just mm-hmm. terrifying. But at, at the same time, I think that's a good thing because a lot of children's literature now has been written in a way where we're we're hiding kids away from the problems that life in the world has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things, even like the Catholic Church came out and said that this is a good thing because it's teaching kids about morals. It's teaching kids about that sometimes the right thing to do has consequences that mm-hmm. affect you negatively. Mm-hmm. There are sacrifices that have to be made. And it prepares you to understand, look, the world's a shitty place. And there are people who will sometimes abuse their position to make other people, you know, lesser human beings exactly mm-hmm. and you have to be that altruistic person and fight against that even if it becomes widespread mm-hmm. yeah. and like that's the message of the harry potter books is that you can rise above yourself and become something more powerful than you ever thought was, po- was you that's were capable that's also yeah. the message of batman i can see why you really <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or even lord of the rings i mean all of these epic or superman well, any heroes yeah. Well, yeah. i would say yeah. any hero's journey yeah. yeah yeah no absolutely oh, Joseph Joseph Campbell's hero's Frodo journey. is about I mean, rising above your position i mean harry yeah. quite yeah. literally the gets the message from the messenger <laughs> of the call to action with that goddamn letter like Seriously? it's very it's quite literal hero yes. hero's journey is so good i saw this nice little fan art where it kind of summarized each character's sort of journey where you say, you know, we found courage with Neville, we learned to be unique with Luna, we fought our demons with Ginny, we made all the wrong choices with Draco, we learned new things with Hermione, we gained confidence with Ron, and we stuck with Harry until the very end. That We stuck with Harry until the very end that comes from J.K. Rowling's dedication mm. in the seventh book. It's a it's a lightning bolt shaped dedication, and there's seven different things that she dedicates the the book to. Mm. And the final one says, you know, and to you, the readers who have stuck with Harry until the very end. Oh, I love it. And the thing I love about that too is when Harry is using the resurrection stone, oh, and he sees his. Fa- I know I'm getting a little tricked too. Oh, for God's when he sake. sees his family. <laughs> I know, it's like stuffing all over again. Um, when, when he sees, when he sees, I mean, he sees his parents again, finally. Mm-hmm. And he sees Sirius again. And he sees a lot of people. I mean, it's, he's, it's his, Cedric it's his, Diggory, he yeah, sees. Yeah, it's, it's his parents, oh, it's Cedric. Cedric, it's Sirius. I believe it's also Bertha Jorkins as right. well. And There's they, ghosts of all of these people that Voldemort has killed. Oh, or, wow. you know, have been killed in Voldemort's name as he's been trying to get to Harry. And basically when Harry realizes that he has to die in order for Voldemort to to lose because basically he finds out through the through a bunch of wandler that 
that because Voldemort has the Elder Wand, there's no way mm. that Harry can defeat him. There's also the, the Horcrux that's inside of him. Exactly. So because his scar is the Horcrux, he thought that basically, well, the only way to destroy Dumbledore, Voldemort is to destroy the last Horcrux, which is me. Mm-hmm. And that's why he's also a parcel mouth, why he can speak to, uh, snake. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, when he chooses to die, he's utterly terrified. It's almost Christ-like in the, the Garden of Gethsemane. Mm-hmm. And he asks his parents... I'm really happy you just made that comparison. Here we go. And I'm getting choked up. He, he asks his parents, will you stay with me? Oh. And they say, to the very end. <laughs> okay. So we've so, uh-huh. waxed poetic on Harry yeah. Potter for years. Uh, yeah. But you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change gonna the quiz piece. Yes, yeah, okay. let's get yeah. to the Potter quiz. I want to I wanna stop before sitting. Before I turn into a five-year-old I want to stop child. sitting here here's crying. A, here's a BuzzFeed quiz. I know okay. BuzzFeed is all sorts of fun, but here's a, here's a quiz called okay. 15 Parts of the Harry Potter Series That Were Never in the Movies. So how is this going to go? Are you going to like I'm ask me? Gonna ask okay, you. Because I know are, you know the answer, babe. Are you going to try to get me to explain it? Like, Okay. Explain lightly. Okay. Explain for context because Sarah won't right. know what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, All right. question number one. Whatever happened to Neville's parents? Uh, Neville's parents were tortured by Voldemort or, and no, they were tortured by Bellatrix Lestrange. Mm-hmm. And that's why Neville has this sort of vendetta towards her. They were tortured severely with the Cruciatus curse because, because of this prophecy, the child that, you know, was foretold to be able to defeat Voldemort could have been either Harry or Neville. Interesting. And so his parents were heavily, heavily tortured and they currently, they're still alive, but they've basically gone mad. And they're they in St. Mungo's hospital. Yes, they yeah. are. They are in St. Mungo's for uh, magical maladies and injuries. Oh my God, Junior, you got the name correct in everything. Yeah. God, you're great. Yes. Okay, number yeah, I two. Think, I think they're cellmates with Gilderoy Lockhart, if I'm not uh, mistaken. They weren't, they weren't, Roommates, but they they saw Neville there visiting his parents when they were making rounds, and then they saw Lockhart there. Yeah. Question number two. Yes. What about Voldemort's family? Uh, Voldemort's family. So Voldemort was conceived by a uh, love potion. His mother, Merope Gaunt, fell in love with Tom Riddle Sr. And, you know, she put him under this love spell. And then eventually she wanted to see if his love was true. And she released him from the spell and he ran off and she was completely um, just upset and so she took him to the orphanage and he was in the orphanage for a while and one of the things about Voldemort is he's so evil because he there's there in essence he cannot necessarily feel love or understand love mm-hmm. because what he was conceived in was artificial so technically he's a sociopath essentially they're, they're yeah. kind of i, I want to say he's a rape baby the thing is he basically yeah it really yeah, yeah, it's a little it's, bit like it's Tom upsetting. Senior kind of was taken advantage of. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. But so and is Moropi. Moropi yeah. is the child of a of, of an incestuous yeah. relationship. Yeah, they're saying that yeah that he is a direct descendant of of a Slytherin. Yes, and too direct. Like the from the family tree never forked. Like the Gaunts <laughs> yeah. were basically the hillbillies of the of the. Oh Wizarding God, world. yeah. Like like oh, the, like God. they were they were the they were the intermarrying. They were bad. They, that's how much they wanted to keep the, the blood the pure. The hillbillies mm. or the royal family? <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> they were more like hillbillies. <laughs> okay. Seriously, because they were not they were not well respected in the okay. Wizarding. Well, when you look at the teeth of both, they're kind <laughs> of one and the same. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, go on. Okay. Can you guess who helped rid the castle of Dolores Umbridge? Uh. A lot of people kind of factored into that, but I'm going to go... Was it Peeves? Yes, Peeves, Peeves the Poltergeist. Cool. Mm-hmm. He was the... Yeah, we, we, we talked about him already. Yeah. You so never... You could find him in the books, but you never knew he existed mm-hmm. in the movies. Yes. Okay, what the heck is a spew badge? So... so <laughs> 
So spew. 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 Five. Four. Or four. 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 four yeah. uh, in year four, she in Goblet of Fire, she saw all of these house elves that were kind of employed, that were basically free labor that uh, so many people were utilizing, but especially the castle. And so she was trying. She was basically fighting for the rights of house elves. And wow. you you see that elaborated in with Dobby later. He gets like a galleon a week or something, and then he can take weekends off and it's a deal he worked out with Voldemort not Voldemort with Dumbledore um and uh he a lot of the other house elves kind of frown upon him for doing that because house elves are supposed to unconditionally serve mm. yeah. let me just but, remind but our Dobby listeners was free, right? yes he was yeah. and that's it nice. they're they're supposed to un- but a lot of these house elves they will not necessarily take clothing because they're they're just very they're very a lot of them are very happy serving because like Hermione tries to kind of sneakily free them she would like knit hats and socks and things and just leave them around the castle for the house elves to find but they were like no I'm not taking that I'm happy in my position like we're not getting paid or anything but we get treated well and she's kind of like no you deserve more yeah nice who the heck is Ludo Bagman Ludo Bagman you what played for a Quidditch team called the Wimborne Wasps. He was a beater. He and his nose is large because it's been broken multiple times by bludgers. Ludo Bagman was a character in Goblet of Fire. He hung out with the family at the Quidditch World Cup, nice. and the twins made a bet with him. Yep. and he never paid up on it. Mm-hmm. He Damn, off the bet. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Now Let you me... get it, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, this is what I'm saying, listeners. Gina is doing this off of the top of her beautiful head. <laughs> she totally is it's unbelievable so, no she's I quite mean, literally looking up yeah. like as if she has the answer <laughs> yeah. floating like, above like her your head. brain is like the library in beauty and the beast and yes. like your your bell just picking books yeah you know? yes. okay continue please so please, please, please. um did you know that there is a house elf named winky yes winky belonged to the crouch family so mm. barty crouch who you did see in book not in book and movie four he David was kind of played him yes uh, nice. no uh he played barty crouch jr yes. barty crouch senior was who uh well the the elf was so winky the elf was there for the crouch family and this was after dobby's freedom and winky is how you we get that segue into the spew storyline winky works at hogwarts um or she began to work for hogwarts after the crouches released her because she she was framed at the world cup for conjuring a spell she was caught with Crouch's wand or she was caught with a wand that she was then accused of stealing and conjuring the dark mark with um and she she was then released and she went to the castle to work and she's basically like a little elf drunkard because she can't she can't stand being away from the family that she is so that she's served so well and then actually when Barty Crouch Jr is masquerading as Moody in the castle she's kind of helping him out because she still has that devotion to nice. that family okay very good answer that's I beautiful. I Last try. question. Okay. What effect should the wizarding world have on the muggle world? So there's currently like a statute of secrecy between the wizarding world and the muggle world. And part of that is to 
protect the muggle world from any sort of conflict that goes on in the wizarding world. So this whole idea of like this blood purity that Voldemort is stressing, that applies to muggles as well. So he Mm -hmm. doesn't like anyone without a magical ability. So they basically keep this separation to as almost a protection kind of thing because they don't want people to get hurt. No, and then the whole prime minister gets visited by the actual like minister of magic. Yeah, he's the only muggle who really knows what's going That's on. Badass. Yeah, yeah. Could you imagine yeah. like fucking I don't know like uh, who is the Tony few? Blair? Yeah, like Tony Blair just getting in on like no one. Yeah, or David Cameron, Thatcher. who's the current. Yeah. 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 Margaret Thatcher being Margaret a wizard. Thatcher. Well, it's so funny too because like there's the opening scene of the f- fifth book. I thought it was. I think it's six. Six books. Six book. Capital Prince. Yes. Um, where it's this prime minister is waiting and he's waiting for a phone call from a president of a faraway country. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> and, and they're, they're, they're implying it's America basically. And how much he hates the, this president. Nice. Um, and then all of a sudden this painting starts talking and said, the minister of magic will be here in five minutes. <gasps> and it was just like, oh. that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cause he, he, the only thing he hates more than talking to the president of the United States is the minister of magic. Cause, he's, cause he just feels like the, yeah. the wizards just interfere. They <laughs> yes. don't, they don't do anything. Those yeah. meddling like, wizards. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Gina, you were all for all. You're fucking Thank brilliant. Thank you. Yes. For sharing your Damn, Gina. <laughs> yeah. Here, I'm, I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and declare this uh, publicly. But Gina has actually made me more inclined, more inclined, Uh-oh. more inclined to read the books. Oh, oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> Admittedly, here's here's no, but here's here's the extent of my Harry Potter experience. Mm-hmm. I watched the first one more times than I can count because some kid I babysat one summer That'll like sour you towards anything. made me watch it over and over and over again. That oh. the first Shrek and how the Grinch stole Christmas, the oh. Jim Carrey version. It was a long and summer. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I know. So Sarah's so, not a fan. So I watched that over and over again, and then I've seen snippets of some of the other movies, but yeah. not really anything past I think Prisoner of Azkaban. So nice. Um, so that I but then to know that there's so many more layers than what was apparent yeah. with that first movie. Mm-hmm. That's what makes me more inclined to want to go read the And books. I think as a first person who gave up after book number four, I do want to go revisit the rest of the series because it's just too rich. How could I not, you know? I, I will say that from my experience, I saw the first movie mm-hmm. first. And then we were getting on a plane to go to Connecticut. I was in the airport. I was about 16 when the Harry Potter movies came out first. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I, I got something to read. And I really saw, oh, Chamber of Secrets. Wait, isn't that the second book? Oh, I'm totally getting that. Nice. <laughs> so I read that and fell in love instantly. So I, did, I read second, and then I read Azkaban and devoured it in five days because it was mm-hmm. the, it's the best book in the series. To, to me, it's still oh, the see, best book. Oh, see, I love four best. Yeah, Goblet of Fire is one of my we'll Then it took me later. three months to read the fourth one because it's oh, so dude. fucking long. <laughs> they get bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger. two days. Yeah, and then I went <laughs> back and read And because I ran out of Potter... Uh, I had to go back and read the first one so I could be up to speed so that when uh, Order of the Things came out, I was yeah. able to jump on from there. So Yeah, I, I picked the first one up when I was in the third grade, and I read, and then um, I think Azkaban had just come out, so I had the three, and then I had to wait for four through seven. 
Uh, I remember getting four the day it came out, and then I went to midnight releases for five, six, and seven, and dressed up like Bellatrix Lestrange for book seven, and then actually all of the subsequent movies after that, I pull out my Bellatrix, and it's fantastic. Nice. (laughs) That's awesome. I just remember going to a midnight screening one time, and then biking home at like three in the morning and getting terrified that I was going to get like attacked by a Death Eater. (laughs) You know, well, I I think a few of us here have a mutual friend who went to um, the premiere of the last movie... um, um, and he's kind of he does a lot of like stage makeup and stuff. Yeah. He actually pulled off a fucking Voldemort. Oh, thing. did he do like liquid latex? I think so. Okay, yeah, I've seen people do that, and it looked really good. Yeah, it looked really good. I was yeah. just really proud of my Bellatrix every year. I had, <laughs> did I you had go fun. about yelling, "You filthy off braid"? I did if people asked me to. <laughs> I nice. could. I also found out that I have a very cackly laugh, and so that added to it. Yeah, like people get Darth, uh, dark mark uh, tattoos. Like I, when yeah, I went to the when that. I went to the release of book seven, there was a guy there dressed up. He was dressed up as Harry, mm-hmm. but he pulled back his sleeve and he had a dark mark tattoo. A, it was the the design from the book, but it was also done in black light ink. Oh, so shit. if you held a light up to it, it glowed. But then if you just looked at it, it just kind of looked like his arm was scarred up. Damn, that's awesome. Damn. Well. I mean, we touched maybe a tenth of what we could talk about. We could talk about Harry Potter for like ten episodes more than. Oh weekly. yeah, I will. I will talk about that for days upon days on. Yeah, it. Roxy knows. Yes, so, I do. So uh, of course you're always welcome back to yeah, wax thank nerdy you. with us. Thank you. So fucking age, damn Gina. Damn Gina. And there you have it, man. What a great episode that was. Um, let's take a second and get into some feedback. Listener feedback. Yeah. We have two pieces of feedback. The first comes from Tala, and the subject is Paul Spider-Man and more bad movies. Tala writes, Hello, nerds. I'm a long-time listener from New Jersey, but in Sussex County up north. There's nothing but rednecks, retired hippies, and nerds like me up there. But that's not why I'm writing, though. Well, we do... Feel a little bad for you for doing with, you know, some of the people there. Nevertheless, we digress. Uh, on the latest episode on Spider-Man, Brian had mentioned Paul Spider-Man. I couldn't help but be reminded of a recent video by the Warp Zone called John Spider-Man, a guy who works in an office and often gets mistaken for Spidey. Is that intentional? Secondly, on the Mobro episode, the feedback suggested another Worst Movies episode. Please do another one. I loved Brian Got Fingered, and there are so many more bad movies to choose from. From The Last Airbender, like you said, North, uh, the animated Titanic movies, Samurai Cop, The Room, Son of the Mask, just to name a few. Wait, hold on. There's an animated Titanic movie? Uh, I think we need to do this as an episode. No question. Uh, please, that would be, plus that would be a great way to uh, get Gina's take on bad movies. Stay nerdy, Tala. Tala, so to answer your question about uh, the Warp Zone, so first of all, as it turns out, yes, we do actually know um, the people at the Warp Zone. Mike Davis uh, is a longtime friend of ours. Uh, happy coincidence that we both came up with the Spider-Man reference that we did. Both are kind of inspired by that episode uh, of Friends. I can't quite remember which one it is, but it involves Phoebe referring to people by superheroes by like Goldman or Spider-Man. Why is it Goldman, not Goldman? So on and so forth. So, uh, great minds think alike. And uh, we will definitely take that feedback about doing bad movies, because that sounds like an awesome episode idea. Then we may be doing that in the very near future. 
Uh, our second and last piece of feedback does come from Joe. And Joe's subject is missed you guys. Message is, hey, y'all. Shout out to Sarah Ashley. I've been meaning to write you guys for a long time now, and I need to stop being that guy or that fan who gushes about you to his friends and tells them to listen to you guys, but never writes in to let y'all know uh, how much your podcast means to me. I've been listening to you guys for two years now and have binge listened to your first 150 episodes at least three times. Damn, dude. Thank you. Um, I feel kind of bad because you've listened to this episode like three times already, and we just did it over for you again, so... Well, I guess that's how the cookie crumbles. Anyway, continue. Uh, so, it's been a few since I've laughed so hard and had to finally tell y'all. Thank you, Sean, for bringing a tear of joy and laughter with Alan. And to tell Gina I loved her in Damn Gina and her Harry Potter knowledge is the stuff of legends. Well, as you have just heard, guys, there is a reason for that. So, uh, it is absolutely well-deserved. Uh, let's. He, uh, he continues. Also, Roxy... And her foxy personality always shines. Brian, your consistency in trying to bring the crew back on track after each derail makes me smile. Thank you for that. Thank you for all your long-running commitments to making this show. You guys are what inspired me to start up a show with some friends. It started on YouTube, but now has sits comfortably as a podcast called Nerdentials. Well, we heard of you guys. You're following us on Twitter. That's awesome. Uh, we love the fact that we inspired you guys to write your own show or do your own show. That's great. Uh, we're a little bit of a variety version of you guys, but we're still working on it. And I apologize, I'm not trying to plug my show. I just wanted to thank you guys for inspiring me and making me laugh. Joe, you are absolutely welcome, and we love the fact that we were able to inspire you to do your own stuff. That's what podcasting is all about. By the way, everybody should try doing podcasting. Mics are not that expensive now, and you can plug them into your phone. It's not that hard, and anybody should at least try it, you know? And who knows what will come from it? It could be a whole other podcast. Could be just a shot in the dark, and that happens too. Um, thank you guys for giving us this feedback. We really appreciate it. If you want to continue to give us feedback, you can go to nerdonomy.com and click on that Talk to Us link, and that will send us an email directly to our inboxes. Uh, you can also hit us up on our social media at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nerdonomy. Just Google us. I promise you'll find it. Um, by the way, while you're at nerdonomy.com, you could either buy a T-shirt to support us, or you can also just give us a little donation, a little bit of money to help us support this community podcast. Um, I think the most important thing you can do, though, is spread the word of nerd. Tell your friends and family, please, hopefully they're age-appropriate, about our show, and help us build our audience, because we love doing what we do, and we want more people to uh, be part of it. So please do that. On that note, by the way, it is that time, so until we meet again, stay nerdy, and tune into our next exciting episode, Same Nerd Time, Same Nerd Channel. Nerdonomy.com. And roll credits. And now, famous movie quotes you should not say during sex. Wingardium Leviosa. It's not working. <laughs> what happened down in the dungeon with you and Professor Quirrell is a complete secret. Ew, that's so creepy. <laughs> <laughs>